1: Welcome to Episode 240 with my guest, Dr. Melanie Watkins. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. All kinds of stuff there. Uh, You can uh, check out the forum. You can fill out surveys that help us get to know you. Maybe your survey will get read on the air. Um, You can support the show financially through the website. Um, You can read blogs, guest blogs, um, buy coffee mugs, T-shirts, all kinds of uh, different things. Um, What else did I want to tell you? Oh, I want to remind you about the two upcoming live events that I have. One is in Los Angeles. Um, on Saturday, September 19th and uh, that's at LA PodFest and I'm going to be re- recording a uh, comedian, Jackie Cation and uh, if you can't make it to uh, PodFest, you can still uh, pay and watch the interview live, watch a video stream of it, and it'll be available, too, for a, a, up to a month afterwards, and um, you can get five bucks off if you go to lapodfest.com and use the happy uh, the uh, <laughs> offer code MENTAL. Uh, that'll get you five bucks off, so it'll take it from 25 to $20, um, and there's a ton of other great podcasts uh, that you can watch for that $20. WTF with Mark Maron, uh, Paul F. Tompkins' new podcast, um, Walking the Room, they're getting together uh, for uh, uh, an episode, um, Never Not Funny with Jimmy Pardo, uh, Dork Forest with Jackie Cation, the, li- the list goes on and on. Um, so uh, that's the LA event. Um, and the, the Brooklyn one is Sunday, September 27th at 7 p.m. My guest is uh, writer-performer Lane Moore, who's very funny. She's written for The Onion and um, sings in a band and uh, has a pretty crazy uh, story. And she's a workaholic. I'm really looking forward to uh, having somebody talk about workaholism. Um and tickets for that, it's at the Bell House. And uh, tickets for that, you can go to thebellhouseny.com, and that's uh, thebellhousen dot com. And uh, tickets are twenty at the door or fifteen in advance. Um, I really hope to uh, see you guys out there at both of them. Um, was there something else I wanted to share with you guys? Why? Oh, I had I had two just angering hockey experiences this week. Um the first one happened uh Sunday night. I play pickup hockey on Sunday nights, which means it's not a league, it's just a group of guys get together, you split it off into sides. One side wears dark jerseys, the other wears light jerseys, and uh you have fun, it's usually pretty low-key. But there's this guy that's been playing there lately who's a really good hockey player, but just has anger issues. And um, just says mean shit to people and, uh, you know, slams his stick against the boards a lot. And, and, um, and it makes it like a couple of, he's made a couple of snide comments, uh, towards me when I've, uh, picked, uh, picked his pocket and, uh, stolen the puck from him. But I, you know, that didn't bother me so much. But what bothered me Sunday is we're walking out to our car and I think he had had a frustrating night of playing hockey. And, um, and he looks at me getting in my car and he goes, Pfft, Prius. <laughs> and I go, well, you know, uh, I, I get the last laugh when I'm filling up at the gas station. And he goes, yeah, and it hurts America. <laughs> and then, and his kid was with him. He and his kid get in his, his truck that looked like it was something out of the movie Transformers. Th- that thing couldn't have gotten more than a mile per gallon and with his kid in the in the cap of the truck lays rubber 35 <laughs> year old man with his child laying rubber <laughs> oh my god um and the other story, it's not even worth telling, but my, one of my teams played for a uh, championship on Tuesday night, and we lost in overtime. But um, I didn't want to go play this team because I just – there's a couple of guys on there that are just they're, – they're dangerous. They're super emotionally uh, unstable. And um, between the two of them, they've probably been kicked out 35 times from games, like forced off the ice, like you have to leave, and then they're suspended. I don't know why they – keep getting allowed to come back, but I keep voicing a complaint saying they're going to seriously hurt somebody, and um, one of the guys did, uh, just fucked my neck up. Um, there's a lot of times when you're playing hockey where you'll pass the puck or you'll take a shot, and for a second afterwards, you're bent over, and you're totally vulnerable. Your neck is exposed, you're in an awkward position, and sure enough, this guy, um just took a run at me while I was uh, bent over after after making a pass and just my neck went crunch, crunch, crunch and uh, neck hurt for like three fucking days but who knows it, it, it would have hit me harder it might have paralyzed me I don't know but it, it why I shouldn't ask why because I've been that guy before I haven't tried yes I have tried to hurt people that's that's I've never tried to, certainly to paralyze somebody, um, but I have tried to, I don't hit guys when they're in vulnerable positions. I think that's what really pissed me off. You know, if you're going to hit me, do it face to face. Give us both an equal chance to hit each other. I think that's what made me so fucking angry. And then the fact that we lost and the fact that it bothered me that we lost bothers me. Oh God, I need to double up on therapy. Let's read a couple of surveys. Do I talk too much about hockey on this? This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This was filled out by uh, Daniel and about his ADHD. He writes, today I'm going to focus on the professor's lecture. What movies out there are similar to Blade Runner? Class is over already? <laughs> One made me laugh about his OCD, driving down the road and realize my tongue is sore because for the hour and a half I've been driving, I've been, quote, jumping the patches and shadows on the road with my tongue. Uh, snapshot from his life, I'm laying in bed thinking there will be a home invasion. I have cancer or I'm going to die in my sleep. I then realize that I haven't checked the door lock in about 15 minutes. I get up to check the already locked door, but I'm not convinced it is properly locked. I unlock the door and lock it again and then check to make sure it is fully in the locked position five times. I then return to bed. Once I get there, I get up again and repeat the process. This lasts for about an hour. At least now, the worry about the home invasion is gone and I'm just left with the fear of cancer. (laughs) This is the same survey filled out by Akara. And a snapshot from her, she lives with uh, depression, anxiety, uh, alcoholism, and uh, living with an abuser. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, Sitting in work at my desk, working on another pointless spreadsheet, when all of a sudden it feels like an invisible dome has come down around me and is filling with water and I can't breathe. But everyone continues talking and laughing around me. How can they not see that I'm drowning? Before I know what I'm I'm doing, I grab my lighter out of my purse and run to the bathroom, heat the lighter up and place three quick small burns down my arm. I feel better for about two seconds before I realize I just did the very thing I promised myself I wouldn't. Then I sit on the bathroom floor and cry for failing myself again before I remember that I have to go back out to my desk and pretend to function like a normal human being. So I wash my face and wipe my eyes and go back to my desk. I laugh at everyone's jokes and join in on the conversation. All the while, my arm is on fire under my sleeve, reminding me just how much of a pathetic piece of shit I am. You are not a pathetic piece of shit. What you are is you are a sensitive person living in a world that has a lot of insensitivity in it, and that's what you are experiencing. You are not a piece of shit. We are normal people reacting to an abnormal world. Uh, And this last one is by uh, a woman who calls herself Mo. And uh, she struggles with depression. And she writes... I really liked this one so much. She writes, explaining to my friend that I had to cancel an invitation with them because I needed to manage my depression. My anxiety kicks in and I need to make sure they don't feel bad... So I cannot feel bad about trying to not feel bad.
0: My god, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom.
1: I will be high by 4pm. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4:15. Prison was not easy.
0: Reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, This intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here
1: with Dr. Melanie uh, Watkins, who is a board certified psychiatrist out of the, uh, the Bay Area. Walnut Creek specifically, right? Yes. And, um... I put some questions out there to uh listeners, uh Twitter people, Facebook people. I said I'm finally going to record a uh psychiatrist and uh, what are questions that you'd like to uh, to ask her? And um I'm just going to go through them. And if I have any of my own, I'll uh, I'll toss them in there, but I have the feeling they're they're going to uh I'll add enough of my own personal shit uh in here in between. Um What does she recommend when patients do not respond to a dozen different meds?
0: (laughs) Well, it depends if they're also in therapy. Uh, so if they're trying medication after medication, they haven't had any therapy, um, then I, I usually refer patients to therapy because I think the medications can be very powerful and very effective. But if they aren't having the regular therapy and a consistent relationship with someone who can help them do the, you know, the inner work that needs to be done, all the medications in the world aren't going to be very effective
1: and, and the other thing that I, I would imagine, too, is if there is an addiction that's not being treated, mm, um, yes. that's my psychiatrist refused to treat me uh, mm. until I got sober. And yeah. I'm so grateful he did. He said, I'm, I'm wasting your money. If you're going to continue drinking, the meds aren't going to do anything if you're drinking yourself into a stupor every night.
0: Yeah, that's a very honest psychiatrist. And that's true because many of the medications that we prescribe, you know, if you add alcohol to the mix, alcohol is a CNS depressant. And so you're going to be basically negating the effects of the antidepressant or the other medication. So really treating the addiction first is a good call.
1: Are you saying I'm a psychiatrist? (laughs) That's all I need. I'm printing up my diploma.
0: Hey, after 13 years of training or so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When did you get your uh, uh, board certification? Because you look very young.
0: Oh, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. You know, it's funny. I used to get a a little bit offended when people would say, oh, you're too young to be a psychiatrist. And then as I got older, I said, hey, I want to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) So I was board certified in 2009. Awesome. Did I give you a water? Yes, you did. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Um, I apologize if it's a little uh, a little warm in here. We we might have uh, visitors outside, so I'm keeping the door uh, the door closed. Um. I would like to know why they generally cannot show an ounce of empathy.
0: Oh. I'm, t- I'm trusting
1: that somebody that uh, has had a bad experience with a psychiatrist.
0: It sounds like it. You know, you have the right to choose your psychiatrist, especially outpatient. So just because you started off with a particular psychiatrist doesn't mean that you have to continue with him or her. Sometimes it's not a good fit, but it doesn't necessarily mean that... You know the um the treatment isn't appropriate it's just a matter of finding someone who you can really connect with hmm. um so i know sometimes it can be difficult at county clinics or in certain settings to get a new psychiatrist but you can always put in a request uh if it's a group of psychiatrists uh, there at the clinic or you know outpatient practice
1: i would imagine too when you're in a county situation where the doctors are just swamped yes um there there's compassion fatigue
0: mm-hmm.
1: and catch that doctor on another day, Mm -hmm. first patient of the day, maybe things are a little different, but you're seeing them maybe at four o'clock and... I don't know. What do you what do you think?
0: Yes, I, I agree. Uh, psychiatrists have stressors, too. And sometimes at busy county clinics, um, sometimes patients are double booked because they know that some patients are going to be no shows or show mm-hmm. up late. And so the psychiatrists, you know, we, we have our our stressors, too. We're human. Um, and I think you're you're totally right that sometimes some days are better than others. Uh,
1: bipolar personality disorder, or not, uh, borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. is uh, notoriously complex to medicate, lots of patchwork, a bit of everything. Are personality disorders not responsive to drugs? I, I, I think maybe answer that in two ways. First, about personality disorders in general, and then about borderline personality disorder.
0: Okay. So personality disorder. So we usually don't make the diagnosis of a personality disorder till after a patient is 18 years old. and. Patients with personality disorders can sometimes have um, a maladaptive way of doing the world and sometimes themselves. And usually for borderline personality disorder, uh, we recommend a form of treatment called DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, um, which was created by Marsha Linehan. Um, who, and, her,
1: who herself has a
0: yes, borderline
1: personality. Yes. It didn't didn't come out with that until a couple of years ago. Yes, which yes. Which I thought was awesome that she... <laughs> shared that
0: i'm really really glad that she disclosed that too um, and it can work wonders to have the individual therapy and the group therapy and talk about ways in which they can learn how to deal with crises learn how to self-soothe and so forth um, we do sometimes use medication for personality disorders such as borderline personality disorder but um, it's more for the impulsivity and irritability and sometimes the depression that can go along with it so sometimes you might use a little bit of Depakote code or an ssri uh completely off-label, um, but sometimes we'll do that to help and what do you patients. mean when you
1: say completely off-label?
0: Um, So there's no FDA-approved medication treatment for personality disorders. Um, So what we do is sometimes target the symptoms. So if patients are having uh, worsening depression, anxiety as a result of their personality disorder, sometimes we'll treat that. Um, Or if they're having irritability, impulsivity, or self-harm behaviors, sometimes we see self-injurious behaviors with um, borderline personality disorder. So sometimes we'll give medication to help target those behaviors, but really that they therapy is, is very very important in treating that disorder
1: learning tools to cope with their expressing their emotions yes and yes th- recognize that other people around them are maybe having a different experience than they are
0: yes yes <laughs> to, <laughs> i want these people to be close to me but i keep pushing them away what happens yeah. and how do i deal with that
1: yeah <laughs> um i think you a- answered both of, both of those um What's your opinion regarding the claim that uh, borderline is less a personality disorder and more a form of CPTSD? They do seem similar. This person writes, "Huh? Complex uh, post-traumatic stress disorder." What what is complex post-traumatic stress disorder?
0: You know, I'm not an expert in in PTSD, so I know generally about post-traumatic stress disorder, and I can speak about that. But there there could be some overlap. I mean, that's something to think about. Um, because many patients with borderline personality disorder do experience some trauma. Um, and they, whether they've experienced that trauma directly or they perceive it as a trauma, the way in which they look at their past experiences impacts their current relationships now. And so, um, that, that is interesting to, to think about the overlap, uh, with PTSD and, and borderline personality disorder.
1: Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, most common uh, emotional injury to people with uh, borderline personality disorder is some type of abandonment, abandonment. childhood abandonment, yes,
0: neglect, abandonment. Um,
1: and it doesn't physically have to, I'm talking to the listener now, it doesn't have to be a physical abandonment. We left you in this warehouse and we went away. It could be, uh, you know, uh, you were sexually abused, or you were told you were a piece of shit or something where your your very being was negated.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. And it can be doubly hard for uh, these folks because they not only are experiencing the abandonment but oftentimes other people aren't really validating the abandonment that they're experiencing and so sometimes then too they'll start acting out wanting that validation and support like you know look at me listen to me I'm feeling this pain I mean they may not be saying that but that's kind of what they're wanting people to realize and then they act in ways that can be very uncomfortable for the people around them so the very people that they want to love them and support them, they indirectly push away. And so this can be really difficult for them because they want that closeness and that security, um, but they sometimes, unfortunately, um, act in ways that can be mm-hmm. off-putting to others. And so in therapy, we try to help patients with that.
1: That that seems like a vicious cycle for that that person who is suffering to to get into because they are Become their own worst enemy and they don't and they don't know it. And I guess that's why DBT must be so helpful is it it not only helps them express themselves, but uh, I from what I understand, the loved ones of people with um, uh, borderline personality disorder uh, often learn DBT to help learn how to communicate with that person yes. so they don't feel panicked and abandoned a lot. Is that is that yes, correct?
0: Yes, yes. So um, when I have patients who have borderline personality disorder in my office, the first thing that I'm thinking is validation, validation, validation. So and being very sincere and saying that I know you're going through a difficult time. Now, other people may not believe that it's difficult, They may, from the outside, see it a certain way, but that person feels it so intensely. And so before even starting to talk about what we can do, I'm going to validate their experience of what they've been through first. And that helps to establish the trust because they want, they really, really deep down want someone who validates what they're experiencing.
1: And, and what they want is so pure and so beautiful. Yes, they want yes. to be loved. They want to be seen. They, they want what we all want.
0: We all want those things. They just
1: want it so, so desperately. Yes. You know, um, I've learned so much about that disorder doing this, uh, this, this show. And, and what's interesting, too, is now I'll see people out and about where I'm like, oh, I think that person has borderline personality disorder. There was a um, which is. Probably terrible of me as an armchair, uh, you know, person <laughs> trying to, um, and I would never say it to somebody. Well, you clearly have borderline personality <laughs> oh, no. disorder. Um, but there was uh, one of the TV shows I watch. It's a, it's a reality show uh, called Naked and Afraid. Have you ever seen it?
0: I've heard of it.
1: Well, there's a woman on that who I swear uh, is has to have borderline personality disorder because you could see her going through the motions of trying to win the love of the of the people on her team and they one of them in particular was just a dick to her and just negated her and you could see the pain on her face yes and then he negated her pain again and then she went and she took their survival tools and she threw them in the river and i was like that (laughs) that is somebody acting out
0: right who was
1: really who reached out for love yes. and acceptance and had their toes stepped on yes and um it 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 broke my heart because i was like i i can't imagine how terrified she must feel right now and i can't imagine how frustrated those guys must be that she just threw their fucking tools in the river.
0: Yes. So, Paul, you you get it. You get it. And sometimes I have to talk with patients in my office who complain about a a boss or an ex-wife or a coworker. Why can't I reason with this person? Why can't I connect with them? What's going on? And the more and more they describe them, I start to think, oh, sounds like that person has a personality disorder. And so then I have to do a lot of education and talk with them about how best they can communicate with the person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny how it always just all comes back to communication. communication, And validating our feelings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, how does someone know when it's time to adjust meds? And two, what changes, good and bad, might be coming with Obamacare? Well, let's do the first one first. How do you know when it's time to change your meds? I've changed mine. I've probably taken 15 different SSRIs oh. in the last 12 years.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. yeah. And even done some atypical ones. Mm-hmm. I just did a Billify and almost had to be hospitalized. Oh. It was, it was, it started out great. I think it might have been a little bit of hypomania. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it turned into nothing but pure anxiety, insomnia, and suicidal thoughts. Oh, and wow. so I weaned, and I was only on four milligrams for a month. Oh. And then I weaned myself off of it over a two week period. And, the, but those feelings stayed for probably a month or two months and i am still now almost eight months later um not able to sleep like i used to be able to to sleep oh have you heard of horror stories uh
0: I haven't haven't heard of a story like that, but I tell everyone, all my patients, I tell them, you know, I don't know every possible experience that can happen with this. We're going to call this a medication trial. Mm It (laughs) was that I let them know that chances are we might have to try a couple of different medications and different combinations. Sometimes I really luck out and the first medication works great, but sometimes we do have to try some different combinations. So. How do I make that decision? Well, first of all, if they're starting a new medication and they really can't tolerate it, usually the first couple of days there might be a little bit of nausea, dizziness, headache. The first few days tend to be the worst, particularly with an SSRI.
1: Dry mouth.
0: Dry mouth. Low libido. Mm hmm, mm hmm. So, if they can tolerate that and get through those initial days, then, you know, they tend to do a little bit better and we can see how they do over time. But if it's really intolerable, they're, they're vomiting every day, they really can't tolerate it, then of course, we stop the medication and we talk about something else. Now, if they've been on a medication for a while and it's worked really well for them, but it's not working as well anymore, um, the most obvious thing for me as a psychiatrist is to increase the, the dosage a bit. So, uh, I'll get folks who'll come to me from primary care doc and I'll increase their Prozac from 20 to 40. And it's like, oh, Dr. Watkins is so wonderful. <laughs> and it's something that simple. Okay? Um, now, sometimes a patient's been on the max uh, dosage of a medication for a, a pretty long time that's when we might have to consider an adjunct. So something like a little low-dosabilify, which I'm sorry, Paul, about your experience, That sometimes we'll do that, a little augmentation. Sometimes we'll add a little lithium or a little bit of Welbutrin, um, sometimes a little thyroid augmentation too. Mm. Um, so we can be creative and, and, and make some changes. Um, sometimes it may not be the, the accurate diagnosis. So let's say uh, I'm treating someone for depression and they're not tolerating the medication well, and now they're starting to have a little bit of, like you said, hypomania or mania, then I, I have to switch them over to a mood stabilizer or something else. Um, so your psychiatrist um, really has many, many options for you. And we're always thinking about what can a patient tolerate that's going to be the most efficacious with, you know, the the, the lowest risk of side effects. Because we really want you to be in a regimen that you can be on, you know, for a while and be stable. So um, it, it is hard each time to try to change a medication for a patient I have to go through the whole discussion about risks and benefits and so forth. So I really, really try to think about, hmm, well, this patient's having difficulty with sleep and their dif- difficulty with anxiety and their appetite isn't so good. Hmm. maybe I'll try this medication versus that. So I really try to hear their whole story before selecting a medication and try to target mm-hmm. you know several different concerns at once with, with a medication.
1: I'll get uh, emails occasionally from people that will ask me questions about meds. And, and, of course, I always say, I'm I'm not even a therapist, let alone a psychiatrist. Stay in contact with the person who is prescribing you. You cannot give them, you almost can't give them too much information. Yes. That That is hugely important that they know everything that is going on with you. But a lot of people are like me. You're like... Well, I gotta spend another two hundred bucks mm. to go see but sometimes I'll shoot my psychiatrist an email. Yes, so if yes. you're if your psychiatrist is open to email mm-hmm. and you don't abuse it yeah. <laughs> and I'm not sure where that line is. <laughs> I know I don't come anywhere close. Good, good. But um stay in contact with the person that's prescribing.
0: Yes. It, it, oh, it, it, that is so important. You know, I, I, I laugh with my patients. I say, you know, I just assume no news is good news. So if I don't hear from you until the next appointment, I'm assuming, Hey, they're doing great with the medication. See you at the next appointment. So, you know, it's, it saddens me when a patient comes in and says, Yeah, Dr. Watkins, I stopped that medication two weeks ago. I just, I couldn't take it anymore. Well, why didn't you call me? Why didn't you email me? You know, a psychiatrist does the same thing. Oh, we want to hear from our patients, really good psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. We want to hear from our patients and we know that, that most patients won't abuse that and if it turns out that it's a little bit more than what we feel comfortable with we'll just ask you to come in you Mm -hmm. know but most of us are pretty reasonable and if you want to shoot us an email or call um, we can address your concerns pretty quickly
1: how has the advertising of pills on television for any disorders changed the public's perception of mental illness in general well that's a broad question but i think an interesting one it
0: is it is i remember uh, when there were commercials for Wellbutrin uh, before it was generic, and I would have patients specifically ask for that medication that's gonna make me feel well. You know, you saw the commercials, like, oh, okay, okay. Um. I
1: wanna play tennis better.
0: Aren't <laughs> they always having fun doing something yeah. while the, the rambling list of possible side effects, <laughs> yeah. and mo- you know, monotone, wanna, <laughs> while they're be, playing tennis and having fun?
1: I wanna fuck my wife on a tire swing. <laughs>
0: well my my son is uh is twenty one and he's so funny, and he's like, "Mom, I think after that uh I'll just keep the the problem that I started off with. I'd rather not have all those side effects
1: <laughs> that is the the side effects listing. thank God that that is um legally." Mandated.
0: Yes, no, no, it's, it's, it's very important for, for patients to know about potential side effects, definitely. Um, but I will say that, um, it has made the general public more aware, um, of some of the medications that we prescribe and what's available to them. Although I will say with some medications like Zyprexa, um, sometimes, you know, uh, there'll be folks, uh, who might see a commercial about Zyprexa that's not necessarily from the pharmaceutical company, but maybe from a legal office. And there'll be concerns about, have you ever had diabetes mm-hmm. as a result, you know, that kind of thing. And that can be off-putting to some of my patients because I'll talk with them about a medication that I'm recommending and they'll say, but but won't I get diabetes or won't I have this problem or that problem? And it, it really can be great in terms of um, getting the dialogue going, but also it can make them even more concerned about taking the medication. Because all medications have some possible risk of side effects. But I want my patients to make an informed decision, mm-hmm. and I'll talk about what's common, what isn't so common, what's very, very rare, and they can talk about what they feel like they could live with.
1: Yeah, because ultimately, it's their it's their decision. Yeah, it's their choice. Yeah. Their choice. You know, the other thing I always like to say to people who are really stuck in ruts that you know my v- my view is that meds should be the last. House on the block, mm-hmm. you should try the exercise, the yes. support groups, the processing of the emotions, mm-hmm. meditation, eating right, all of that stuff, and if you still need stuff, then I think meds are definitely worth they've they've absolutely saved my life. Mm. that being said, um you know there there are times that um people say, well, I've tried all of those things, but I still don't want to take meds, and they're sleeping sixteen hours a day, yeah. they're feeling suicidal, and I'll say to them. What are the side effects of not taking meds?
0: <laughs> yes, good point.
1: Sleeping 16 hours uh-huh. <laughs> a day, losing job after job, yes. unable to have a stable relationship in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that isn't that a side effect? So yes. that you know that's something to to consider. Yes, it is. Uh, are people with personality disorders a lost cause as far as changing who they are, even if they want to? And does medication help? We talk, touched on it a little bit, but to expand on that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question because sometimes they may not have the insight. So, for example, and they may not want to change at all. I mean, they may not have the insight. They may not want to change. There, There's two parts to that. Um, there are some people, let's say, who have narcissistic personality disorder. They may not even care about how their behavior is affecting their, their functioning. You know, they might uh, be CEO of a company and they have a lot of people working under them and they're very successful. Um, but they may not really care that they have narcissistic personality disorder. It's working for them. Right. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, or someone who has antisocial personality disorder who might be charming and, you know, and able to get their needs met and they have a a certain way of looking at the world it may not be a problem to them so it really depends on what the personality disorder is how much insight they have and their motivation and willingness to change Uh, but we like I said before you know we do know that medications don't tend to work too well to primarily treat a personality disorder the person ultimately has to be willing to to do the work to go to therapy and work through that
1: and find coping skills and find
0: coping skills But but unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there with personality disorders who it's working for them on some level, Mm -hmm. and they don't really feel a desire to change.
1: Have you come across somebody who uh, has narcissistic personality disorder that wanted to change?
0: (laughs) No, never.
1: Have any of your colleagues come across somebody who?
0: No, no, I haven't heard of anyone. And the patients who do come in, they might come in for another reason. Um, let's say their wife has finally gotten them to come in. And, you know, they'll, the whole approach about it will be, oh, well, the wife told me to come in here. And yeah, but and they'll go on and on and on in a very narcissistic way about why they're there and not really um, be willing to look into what's going on for them internally. So there's kind of like this block there, you know, and as uh, a psychiatrist will try to work with patients, who have narcissistic personality disorder will even kind of feed and gently feed into the narcissism because if you try to come across as expert to a narcissist, it's going to shut the relationship down. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you do have to say, yeah, you have a good point. Yeah, you're right about that. And then try to work with them. But it's extremely hard because they're not coming in because they see that they have a problem. Usually it's the folks around them that are concerned. um, And they will then say, it's the other people's problem, not mine. They're
1: coming in to get the heat off.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah, you see a lot of people come into uh, support groups for addictions, and that and those people almost never get any kind of sobriety because you you have to want it for you yourself. You have to
0: want it because yes. there's a lot
1: of work involved. There's a lot mm-hmm. of that, a lot of humbling information uh, that you need to process and chew on. And um, yeah, um, oh, this is a good question. Um, is the thinking still that if you've had recurrent episodes of major depression? are lifelong antidepressants needed?
0: Yeah, so I'll tell patients who come in with their first depressive episode that they may not need to be on medication long-term, particularly young people who come in, they have all the criteria for MDD, and I'll tell them, let's give this a trial, let's see how you do for nine months to a year, and then we'll reassess. And usually uh, I also have them in therapy at the same time. It's very, very important. But for some patients who have been hospitalized multiple times have had suicide attempts who have a strong family history I will tell them that it may be in their best interest to be on medication long term and I think that the risk of them not doing so well you know not being on medication um, really needs to be discussed because those patients are at such high risk of having uh, you know, bad outcomes in terms of relapse, future suicide attempts, et cetera. So I think folks in those situations probably benefit from being on lifelong therapy.
1: Okay. Uh, should you change meds after several years of use um, if d- the depression is stable for a long time?
0: Well, if it's working yeah. uh, and things are stable. Um, oh,
1: they're thinking of, uh, they added thinking about Trading off,
0: ah, so definitely important to be in discussion with your psychiatrist oh about God. that.
1: I uh, I actually had a uh, almost died from trying to go off my meds on my own. My psychiatrist had strongly urged me not to do it, but I thought, oh, you know, I've got this new diet. <laughs> I was probably depressed because I was eating too much white flour, um, and I thought if I don't if if I start feeling worse in the first. Uh, three months, then I'll know it's the depression, and I'll go back on my meds. <laughs> I didn't realize uh-huh. that it can take longer than that for the depression to come back. So when it came back at five months, mm. I thought it was reality, ah.
0: and I thought my life
1: really was meaningless and futile, mm. and and I was starting to think about suicide. And then one day it occurred to me, oh my God, this is the darkness. Mm. And I got back in my meds, and three days later, I felt fine. And yeah. that's why I started this podcast. Oh, right. Really? Because I thought, yes, I thought people. I, if I've been in therapy and psychiatric care for ten years, and I was fooled by it, hmm. think about somebody out there who doesn't even believe in mental illness. Yes. How much is is they're up against in yes. trying to feel better? Um, but I, the reason I bring that up is because there is this thing in us those of us that have to take meds, that we are looking for any excuse to get off them hmm. constantly, constantly. Yes. So what would you say to this person who, who wants to titrate off?
0: Well, first of all, I ask them why. You know, sometimes the medication has been so helpful for the patient and they want to get off of it. The first question is, why is that? You know, is is it stigma? Is, is someone telling you you don't need those meds anymore? Are you having any problems, side effects with the medication? So the first the first question to answer is why and why now? Okay, so what else is going on in your life right now that makes you think this is a good time to do that? And then also, too, really exploring the history and letting patients know. Like, I'll read out loud to them their initial psychiatric evaluation. So, for every patient that comes to my office, I have, you know, dictated uh, psychiatric evaluation, and years and years have passed. And they forget sometimes how difficult and bad life was for them when they first came in. I have to read it out loud. You know, patient is experiencing this, you know, going all the way down. It's like, oh, okay, that's why I need to stay on my medication. Yes, that's why.
1: My psychiatrist will do that. I see him every six months Uh and uh, sometimes more if needed. But... He will do that every time I go in. He will read out loud mm-hmm. where I was the previous time I was in there. And yes. it always shocks me because uh-huh. I always forget. Yes. Oh my God, that's right. I had lost a hope six yes. months ago.
0: Yeah, yes. Yeah, that can be very, very powerful. Um, so, so it, it really is worth uh, a discussion with your psychiatrist about that. So please, please don't stop your medication suddenly without being in touch with your mental health provider.
1: Oh, here's another person that had a bad experience. Uh, why are so many psychiatrists? Uh, why do so many uh, psychiatrists seem to suck and diagnose and treat mental health problems like they're troubleshooting a computer without giving regard to the fact that the person is a human individual?
0: Oh, I'm I'm really sorry to hear that person had that experience with their psychiatrist. There are others to choose from too. And I just really want to. Emphasize that um, just because you have an initial bad experience with psychiatrists doesn't mean you're stuck with that psychiatrist for life or doesn't mean that, oh, you know, I'm done with mental health treatment. I never want to do that again. Um, there are some psychiatrists who are more warm than others. There are some who spend a little more time with patients than others. And sometimes it takes a few tries to find someone who's a good fit.
1: Yeah. Uh, this is a good follow-up uh, from a different person. Uh... Does she feel psychiatrists get adequate training in talk therapy when compared to clinical psychologists?
0: So that that is a good question. So when I was in training, I actually had... Uh, supervision from both psychologists and psychiatrists. Oh, and, that's great. Yeah. So I learned a lot about psychodynamic psychotherapy, CBT. Um, and I actually did a little bit extra, you know, on top of my psychiatric training because that was so important to me. So I really believe in treating the whole person. Um, you know, one of my former supervisors said, you know, I refuse to be a psychiatrist from the, the wrist down. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I'm not going to spend all all day writing scripts for people. It's very important to me to have a real relationship with that patient. And also I do a little bit of what we call supportive therapy every time a patient comes into the office. I don't want to just talk about medication. That's not fun for me. That's not great for the patient. So that's very, very important. In the past, it used to be that psychiatrists were required to have uh, what we call supervision or what I like to call theravision, because sometimes it ends up being a little bit of therapy along with supervision. Uh, but, um, now it's optional. Um, and so that's unfortunate because for the psychiatrist to be on the couch, so to speak, and have that experience with someone who's dedicated to helping them work through all of their stuff that, Mm -hmm. you know, shows up in the room with the patient, it's, it's so important. So I had several years of that. I'd meet with my psychiatrist when I was a resident at 6am, you know, once (laughs) a week he was so wonderful he he just really made a big difference in my life and helped me out so much during that time as i was learning how to be there and present for my patients while also keeping in mind i had my own stuff right um and so it's optional now and i really really think that it should be mandatory again i agree that yeah. i agree it's a, it's a different experience being on the the couch versus being in the chair
1: yeah i i have yet to have an experience with a psychiatrist Where I felt this alone would be enough.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: I wish you lived in Los Angeles. (laughs) I I swear to God, I would switch. uh, I would switch psychiatrists. You're very warm.
0: (laughs) Very warm.
1: Um, I'm curious to know about avoidant personality disorder. It's rarely discussed. Hmm. What do you know about it? Well Or would you prefer to avoid talking about <laughs> avoid it? Avoid
0: <laughs> talking about it. You know, we, we usually talk primarily about the what we call the the cluster B personality disorders that we've described before. The um borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and sometimes histrionic personality disorder.
1: Why do they call them cluster Bs?
0: Um, because there's cluster A, cluster B, and cluster C. So it's just the way that we uh categorize the personality disorders okay. and they kind of all have the the clusters have something in common with each other. So we don't really talk so much about dependent or avoidant personality disorder because um I just think the other ones are are ones that we deal with all the time with family members and coworkers and employees and so forth. We talk about that more. Um But uh, as far as avoidant personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, these two can affect functioning. Okay. So if someone's avoidant or shy or reserved, that may be keeping them from being able to live the fullest life that they could live, you know, or had a patient with severe dependent personality disorder who was often admitted to the psychiatric unit. And... It became very difficult for the staff to find that balance between being there for her and supporting her and helping her to get better, but also pushing her, you know, to be more independent and be more functioning so that she wouldn't have to keep coming back to the hospital because it wasn't the best place for her to get treatment for her personality disorder but that was primary and she felt so much support and love from the staff so she would sometimes say that she's having suicidal thoughts and that she needed to go to the hospital and she'd come in and get all of this great support from the nurses, the OT staff, the psychiatrists and then we'd start trying to push her to take care of her ADLs, her activities of daily living and, 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 and trying to get her to do things and then she'd resist that and then kind of regress a bit and we'd get into this whole dynamic and so sometimes that can be very difficult. She really would have benefited much more from having regular ongoing therapy with a therapist who could find that balance with her, be there for her, validate her, support her, but also push her a bit. But being in a psychiatric unit, that wasn't really the best place for her.
1: Yeah. um, One of the surveys we have for the show is the um, um, being hospitalized Mm -hmm. survey. And People's experiences are never somewhere in the middle. Mm. They either feel that their hospitalization saved their life, mm-hmm. or it was one of the worst experiences they've ever had. Mm. Uh, and it seems almost completely dependent on the amount of compassion and attention that they received in in the facility.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, is it money? Is it oh? <laughs> ba- is it bad uh, staff members? Is it a culture of? arrogance what what makes a bad um what makes for that bad situation that when i read these terrible surveys
0: Hmm. Well, there are many, many factors. Sometimes, even though the doctor may really want this and the rest of the staff really wants this for the patient to be able to stay in the hospital longer to get the treatment that they need and deserve, there are so many factors at play, and it's very hard to explain to folks and families how these systems work. Um, so, for example, uh, there might be pressure from the insurance company um, or uh, utilization review who's looking at the acuity um, of the hospital stay and saying, okay, this patient no longer meets criteria for acute inpatient treatment, you need to discharge them. Even though the doctor may not feel fully ready to discharge the patient, we act as part of this larger system. Um, and so it's very important to, you know, for me and working with my patients, I try to come up with an appropriate aftercare plan and do everything I can to. Um, try to help them get the services that they need after they're discharged from the hospital because the hospital length of stay is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Well, that's almost like with anything in medicine. It used to be when women had a vaginal delivery, they would stay in the hospital a lot longer. And now it's kind of like a drive-through delivery. I used to joke about that. that they, give basically, you, <laughs> they give
1: you a C-section on Uber. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I, I mean, there's so many factors. There's, there's money and there's business and there's insurance and there's, there's so many factors. But, yeah, it's – it's, and so I think that can also, to taint the hospital stay. Um, so I see patients who have all kinds of diagnoses in, in the hospital. And so for some of my patients who have um, severe mental illness, who have schizophrenia – um, sometimes to the stay can be very difficult if they're requiring, you know, intramuscular injections or other treatment that can be very traumatic to them. Um, and that can be very hard. And also them not even wanting to be in the hospital or having the insight to know why they're in the hospital. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then you have someone who's, let's say, You know, pretty high functioning and they have a job and they have resources and they have insurance and you really want to be able to spend lots of time with them. But the doctor, I mean, over the years, I went from seeing about eight patients per day on the inpatient unit and now I average 12 to 13, but there's been sometimes I've seen 16, you know? Yeah, yeah. So things have really, really changed. So obviously that decreases the amount of time they can spend with that patient. I used to love family meetings. When I first started out of residency, I thought, oh, this is so fun. I get to educate you know, the family and talk with them about how they can be supportive and come up with a good aftercare plan. And as time went on, I had this yucky feeling inside because I dreaded the family meetings. Like When a family member would show up and want to talk with me, I'd, I'd, I'd just kind of tense up. Why? because I knew that I wasn't gonna be able to give them the time that I wanted because I had so many patients to see and that frustrated me so much. And so um, now the, the compromise that I make is, you know, I tell them, like, let's set up a, a time where you can come, you know, back, like maybe tomorrow or something. We can talk on the phone and conference call with a social worker, and I can talk with you about the overall plan. But I don't have the flexibility in my day that I used to have where I could kind of, you know, put some things on hold and meet with the family while they're there and then get back to my work. Now it's just, it's so busy. And is
1: it because that scheduling is dictated to you or or you have built your schedule up that You've packed your schedule that tight.
0: No, no. Some of this just comes from the general hospital systems and the administrators who, um, you know, have determined, you know, we have these many beds, we have these many doctors, and these are the number of patients that need to be seen in a day. And so... You know, if I were to um, create more time to do the family meetings that I have 16 patients to see, I could potentially be there till 10 o'clock at night. And there's a saying in medicine, the longer you stay, the longer you stay. (laughs) So you have to, for your own mental health, you have to have a cutoff at some point. Um, What
1: what does that mean? The longer you stay, the longer you stay. There's
0: there's always more work to do, always more things that come up. So let's say um, I finish my work for the day. Um, it's 6 o'clock. I'm getting ready to have the door and something has happened with a patient. Um, and the nurse is saying, oh, Dr. Watkins, can you c- take care of this? Well, technically, it should be the doctor who's on for the next shift, but oh, it's my patient. I'm still here. Okay, I can take care of this. No problem. So you find yourself kind of getting caught in this, nice. you know. Yeah. So it's hard to find that end point uh, because, you know, you need to be fair to your family and be able to get home and, and be there for them. But yeah, the longer you stay, the longer you stay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> have you um maybe this sounds like an obvious question, but um Dr. Watkins is African American. Have you um encountered uh racism uh as a medical a, a, as a psychiatrist? Um and and how have you handled it?
0: Hmm. Yeah, so It's interesting because in my private practice (laughs) in Walnut Creek, uh, when people look me up online, they can see that I'm an African-American female. And so if they have any, you know, racism, sexism, ageism concerns, they're just not going to call me. So that kind of eliminates
1: (laughs) those people right there. Beauty of the Internet.
0: (laughs) Um, But in a hospital setting... um, You know, there's been some situations where someone will say that they don't want a doctor of a certain culture or background. And sometimes for some patients, it might be some paranoia or something else going on. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of look at the the situation for the patient and try to meet them where they're at. Okay, Mm -hmm. so, for example, if if a man, if a white man in his 80s calls me colored, I'm not going to be offended because that's the time that he grew up in. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I meet people where they're at. But as far as blatant racism um, I haven't really had any situations that I, I couldn't handle or, you know, something that was so off-putting that I wasn't able to do my job, nothing like that. But there's subtle, you mm-hmm. know, racism and things that come up and also, you know, sexism. It's funny, um, when I was in residency... People had no idea what I looked like. And so randomly, the psychiatric resident was assigned to a patient in our continuity uh, clinic. And so I remember uh, this patient came in, and I came out to greet him. He's like, you're Dr. Watkins? You're Dr. Watkins? And so I'm thinking, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking, I think he didn't expect me to be so young, black, female, because <laughs> I look nothing like Freud. But, um, you know, it, it's funny because it's also worked in another way, though. I've had some patients who've come in who have said, I, I wanted a doctor who's very different from me. I wanted a doctor of color because I think that doctor's probably been through some stuff. And do you feel like that's true? I do feel like that's true uh-huh. because they know that to be at this position in my life at this time and, and to have, you know, the level of success and, and so forth that I have that, yeah. I've I've dealt with some stuff to be here. Mm. And so some people will actually find that, you know, really helpful to know that the psychiatrist hasn't had this perfect pristine life where everything's been easy for her.
1: I you know, one of the, one of the things I think is so often discounted in the discussions of mental illness is the uh, generational effects of institutional racism Hmm. Um, because I have you here and Mm -hmm. you're African American Mm -hmm. and you're a psychiatrist and race is such an important issue, Mm -hmm. especially in the media in this last year, there's finally some awareness um, and people are no longer able to say, Oh, we got a black president. There's no, there's no racism Mm -hmm. anymore. (laughs) Um, What are, what are your thoughts being in the, Position you're in as a clinician and a black woman.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the the things I feel very strongly about is educating more people of color to become therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists um, Because there is such stigma Um, and I think that we need more people out there Of color to be available to people of color so that they can feel a little more comfortable in getting the the treatment that they need. Um, You know, gosh, if I had a dollar for every time I heard a friend or relative or, you know, someone say, Oh, well, I'm just going to pray on it. I'm going to pray on it. You know, I'm I'm praying. I'm talking, I'm, yeah, talking with God, talking to the Lord about it. Um, And it's good to do that. Prayer is very important. And it can be very helpful to feel like you can give this to a higher power. But then it's almost like using that instead of getting the treatment that you need. And so having someone who has that cultural connection, because when I hear another person of color saying something like that, I get it because I, I grew up in that same environment. I get that, you know, I know what it's like to, you know, go to the pastor, go to the church and pray on it. Um, but there's there's sometimes so many barriers, because, you know, the, the person of color might be looking at, you know, a therapist of a different background and thinking, oh, this person will have no idea where I'm coming from, they won't get it. And then that can be um, a, a big challenge. So I think, you know, encouraging more people of color to go into mental health fields is, is important. I think that's going to help. Um, also, I, what's going on in the media, what's going on as far as police violence and stuff, this a impacts people in so many ways you know i had a teen who um, recently who um, was placed on a 5150 Um, so here in california it's a legal psychiatric hold and um, someone called the police because she um, had some behavioral concerns. She had no psychiatric history. And when I met with her and talked with her about why she was on this hold, she was like, F the police. I don't care about them. They don't care about us.
1: You can say fuck here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you don't personally, I don't even- <laughs> but just letting you know you can. Okay.
0: Okay. But um so so the the officers thought that she was someone who might be manic or you know acting bizarrely. And she was basically trying to fight back against the police because she's seen all of the violence and the media and all that's going on. And she is a young person of color was like, I'm standing up for myself. And by me being a person of color. Um, I was able to connect with her in a way and I said, I I hear what you're saying. I hear that this was so angry, you know, such a, a difficult situation. You are so angry about it and you wanted to get back at them. But I said, you know, we have to choose our battles wisely. Your ultimate goal is safety here, okay? Your ultimate goal is to be able to get through the situation and then afterwards you can use some of that frustration and who knows, maybe you'll become an advocate of some sort or maybe you'll be a therapist or a lawyer or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and make change in a different way but you against the police you're it's little not turn it's, out well. it's not going to turn out well okay yeah. and so she was really able to get that you know and i was able to share with her I don't do a lot of, um, disclosure, but in this particular situation, I thought it could be helpful and I think it was. So I told her, you know, my son is 21, six foot two, big afro, you know, I had to have the talk with him very early on, how to communicate with the police if you're ever pulled over. Okay. Or if they ever approach you, you know, you be respectful, you stay calm, you hear what they have to say. You know, if you're in the car, hands at 10 and two o'clock, you know, <laughs> yeah. And so, this was an important discussion that I had to have with him that, you know, perhaps other people aren't having with their children. And this is something that this patient was really able to take in, you know, and we also talked about coping skills and strategies and so forth. But she didn't need to be in a psychiatric unit. She didn't need to be on a psychiatric hold. But this is those larger racial issues that are playing out in people's lives. And
1: that's the thing I can tell you as somebody from the white community that we never even consider that we don't that we need to hear about that we need to go you know my parents didn't have to have that talk with me yes. to keep your hands at 10 and 2 mm-hmm. you know it breaks my heart yeah. that, that 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 is a a conversation that a parent has to have with their child mm-hmm. it's like um
0: it's the world that we we live in unfortunately um and so you know jonathan feels very empowered that way that he knows how to conduct himself if this happens and the ultimate goal is safety and then later on we can you know if we need to do something else we can go that route but in the moment the -hmm. ultimate goal is safety and it's it's sad but it's true that many people of color have to have these conversations Mm -hmm. with their children
1: a lot of people i think are like me and that we're opposed to racism And we think we know Mm. the effects of racism, Mm -hmm. but we don't really, Mm. because we don't live it. Mm -hmm. We see it. We see it in the news. Mm -hmm. Maybe we have a a person of color who's a friend that shares their stories with us, but we don't hear the day-to-day thing, the Mm -hmm. the conversation that you had with your son, Mm -hmm. the conversation with the the, the woman who wanted to confront the police. Mm -hmm. And I think until we can have those dialogues every day. The people who are in denial that there Hmm. is still institutional racism are never going to change. That's that needs to be because a lot of those, some of those people I think are um, ignorant. Some of them are mean and some of them are just ignorant. Mm -hmm. Some are Mm -hmm. both, but the meanness i don't think there's anything we can do to change yeah, those people right, really right. um but the ignorance i think there there's stuff that we can do and i i'm just kind of thinking out loud here but that there needs to be um a way that we can see the minutia mm-hmm. of racism yes. the the non dramatic mm-hmm. racism that takes its toll mm-hmm. the um i guess as the cops would call it the um cumulative mm-hmm. ptsd and that yes. that's what i guess i was looking um to make a point on earlier when i talked about 400 years of institutional racism mm-hmm. the collective yes. ptsd yes. of of that
0: right um, and 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 this young person who told me about the situation um there, you know, in the psychiatric unit, I totally got where she was coming from, because she's felt, you know, you know, those little microaggressions. And so she's felt it, felt it, felt it for so long. And they caught her at a point where she was just like, I can't take this anymore. And I'm going to stand up for myself. And she wasn't really thinking clearly about these people have guns, these people have batons, these people can arrest you, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, I think that over the years that just builds up, builds up, builds up. And so people wonder, well, well, why do people do this? Why do why do some black women go off on me and do this and that or whatever? Why are they, you know, but you have to understand where some of that's coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're treated a certain way for so long, you get to the point where it's just like, F it. Like, you, yeah. know?
1: <laughs> you know, I've, I've noticed the times when I lose my temper, uh, as the listeners know, usually when I'm, uh, playing ice hockey, it's, <laughs> it's never, almost never about the person Uh, that pissed me off yes it's about the phone call i had had with my mom where she emasculated me Mm -hmm. or i perceived it as a certain way or my fear that my job is going away you know a thousand other things Mm -hmm. and I, i guess the challenge for both of us um you know both people who are experiencing racism and people who are um not interested enough in it is um is to remember not to treat everybody else as um, the person that wronged you.
0: Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's so
1: hard when you're having a shitty day. Yes. Are you okay on time? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Should the crapshoot of meds in the beginning be free? I'm not going to be on them till I die. Perhaps the big pharma confront the cost of the first six to ten weeks. I don't see the patient's value with using the wrong drug for two weeks. Well, my psychiatrist, when he gives me a new one, almost always gives me like four or five bottles of samples yes. to, to start out on.
0: Yes, so. yes. I, I Yeah, I'm very similar to your psychiatrist. So I try to do everything in my power to help the patient out with the finances because it's an expense to see the psychiatrist, you know, um, and then also to add on the cost of medication I don't want there to be another barrier. So we get creative. So sometimes it's providing samples. Sometimes there are, um, pharmaceutical copay cards. Sometimes they're online programs based on income. And so, especially with the newer medications, if it turns out that the patient needs a certain, um, you know, less than a certain income level, um, they might be able to qualify for some meds that would be covered. And, and, and most of these companies allow each psychiatrist to have, you know, three patients or so in, in one of their patient assistance programs they're called, you know, different names by like mm. different companies. Um, but uh, yeah, I do everything that I can to decrease the cost. One of the um, resources that I've been using a lot over the last two months is goodrx.com. I was
1: just going to say that one. I've heard some great things about them.
0: It is great. So um, you can present that. Uh, so there's a couple different ways to do it. So they actually have cards that you can get or you can go to the website or you can use your app and you present uh, the information to the pharmacist, much like an insurance card. And then the pharmacist will run it and uh, chances are you'll pay a lot less than you would otherwise. So that's a really good resource. And, and two, sometimes I have my patients put in different zip codes um, because sometimes um, it might be cheaper in Oakland versus Walnut Creek, whatever reason, you know, oh. or at different pharmacies. So we we get creative. Sometimes Costco and Walmart are good places to get prescriptions that might be a little less expensive than other places. Um, and then also, too, if the psychiatrist is comfortable, you can ask him or her to write for um, a different um, dosage of the medication. So let's say I want a patient to be on Latuda 20 milligrams. Um, sometimes if I write for 40s and then have them split it in half, you know, they'll save money that way. So there's there's many ways to be creative. I don't want patients to let that be a barrier to them mm-hmm. um, getting their medication. So there's always a way.
1: And numbing with vodka is always a good uh, no. cheap alternative route. No, no it works. <laughs> you just got to stick with it. <laughs> I swear to god, I wish you lived in Los Angeles. I would so fire my psychiatrist. Um How to handle a true sociopath as a family oh. member? I want oh. to cut I want to cut them off from me, but I want my nieces in my life. They need me and I need them. Wow, that's a tough one.
0: Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, That, yeah. So if you have someone who in the family who has uh, a severe personality disorder, yet there's other relatives that you still want to uh, be in contact with. Um, well, first of all, it might be an issue of safety. I don't know what level of sociopathy this person has, but obviously if they're dangerous, you mm-hmm. want to do what you can to advocate for your family, right? So you want to make sure that they're, um, safe. If they're, uh, you know, younger than 18 and you think that it's a, a danger issue, then you'd want to maybe get the authorities involved and call CPS. Now that's if they're truly, you know, that there's, they're at risk of being harmed. Um, now if they're more of a, someone who's just very difficult to, to deal with and it's not clear that it's, exactly that. Um, then you can talk about having good communication and good boundaries. So you can just be very clear and say, you know, I know that we don't have a relationship, but it's very important to me to be able to uh, communicate um, with, um, you know, nieces, nephews. Um, how do you feel about that? Can we talk about how that might be possible? You know, maybe um, you could meet somewhere and, you know, in a public place and, and they can spend some time that way versus going over to that person's house and having to kind of be in their environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, it, it can be pretty tricky sometimes when people have, uh, severe, um, issues to maintain relationships. Um, but also too, uh, you know, as the children get older, they'll have more insight and more awareness, understanding. You know, I often say that you as, you know, the co-parent or, um, you know, the other relative, um, you don't have to be the one to say something negative about that toxic person or whatever. Like, that, per- that kid is going to ultimately come up to their own conclusions, and they're going to kind of realize what's going on. Your best route is to be there to validate and support that kiddo and help them to assert themselves, have good boundaries, good communication. Okay, so there's nothing you can really do to change that so called toxic person, but you can be there for that young person and they'll kind of get the gist of what's going on as they get older. Yeah. They start to realize, wait a minute, you know, my, my dad is not like other, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, they'll, they'll pick up and then also, you too, encouraging them to get into therapy and being there for them as a responsible adult who's, you know, uh, empathetic and, and, and there for them and can validate what they're experiencing.
1: That's awesome. At what point does the doctor recommend uh, some sort of in-house treatment or hospitalization, aside from being suicidal? Mm. That's an interesting one. Yeah,
0: so I had a patient who um, recently who I really, really, really want to go to what we call partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient. So I've tried several medications for her, SSRIs, SNRIs, mood stabilizers, atypical, and she's still functioning, but she has a lot of anhedonia. She doesn't want to do some of the things that used to make her very happy. She's anxious about starting school soon. And so I said, gosh, you know, maybe PHP or IOP, intensive outpatient might be a good option because what's nice is it's not putting a patient in the hospital where they're in a locked unit and it's a different Uh, uh, environment, being in a locked unit versus being in um, a place where you can come and go. Mm -hmm. So PHP is usually nine to three or so, Monday through Friday, and there's intensive group, and the psychiatrist is available every day. And there can be medication changes that can be monitored and supervised. Um, And for folks who work during the day or have school during the day, they could do intensive outpatient in the evening, Mm -hmm. and that may be three evenings a week. And then the person, you know, goes back Mm -hmm. home, spends the night at home, comes back you know, um, later on the week. So yes, I wish more people knew about that because when I bring it up to patients or to, um, parents, they're always kind of like, Oh, I didn't know about that. Because sometimes people think it's just either I'm seeing the doctor in the clinic or I'm on the psych unit, you yeah. know, at a hospital. Yeah. So yeah. there are other options. Yeah.
1: And, uh, as well with, um, addiction treatments, mm-hmm. there's yeah. inpatient and, and outpatient. Yes. Um, let's see.
0: Yeah, there's alternatives to you know people. A lot of people know about residential 28 day programs, but PHP and IOP, um, if insurance covers it, something to look mm-hmm.
1: into. Uh, could you explain the different categories of meds that are applied, that are prescribed? You know, mm-hmm. you have talked about SSRIs, and then another one.
0: Oh, um, SNRIs.
1: SNRIs. Yeah. I
0: so, so specific names of, or? Yes,
1: for, you know, uh, say, okay, this is one category and this would include drugs like this and this and this and they're used to treat such and such. Oh, okay. Uh, kind of give us a sense of your palette as sure. a.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what I have to choose from, right. Yes. Okay. So the SSRIs, um. And what they,
1: and what the names stand for. Sure. As well.
0: Yeah. So, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So, uh, SSRIs. So the first one that came out was Prozac back in 1987 or so. And these are medications that we use for depression. They're called antidepressants, but we use them for depression, for anxiety, for OCD, for PTSD. Before the SSRIs, there were these older medications called tricyclic antidepressants. So these are medications like Elevil or Pamelor. So these may have been antidepressants that maybe, you know, parents were on, you know, the older medications. They tend to have a lot of side effects and can be very dangerous and overdose. And so when the SSRIs came out, it's like, wow, this is great. We have medications that patients can take once a day that have minimal side effects, okay, and... Um, At least
1: compared to the previous compared generation. Compared to the previous
0: ones, right, compared to the previous ones. So so those have been around for a while. And now, we also have what are called SNRIs, and these are medications like Cymbalta and Effexor, which we use for depression and anxiety, okay? And uh, what
1: does SNRI stand oh,
0: for? Um, uh, so, so, so they work on both serotonin and norepinephrine, but selective nor norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Okay. Um, and so those medications we use for depression and anxiety. So then we have what are called the mood stabilizers. So we use these for patients who have um, bipolar disorder, but we also use them uh, off-label, kind of going back again to off-label, uh, for irritability, impulsivity, and such. So, and some uh,
1: examples of those
0: would be? Impulse control disorders, or Uh, I know the the meds. Oh, oh, the medications. Oh, okay. So Depakote, Tegretol, Trileptal, Lamictal, lithium Mm. medications
1: like that. I'm on I'm on Lamictal.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm. Lamictal is a is a good medication. It takes a little while to get up to um, a therapeutic um, dosage. So um, you know you start off very low at 25 milligrams and you slowly titrate upwards. Um, I
1: started out at 5,000 and worked my way down (laughs) just because I'm different. (laughs) I I uh, experienced I didn't realize it at the time but um a lot of the meds that I've been on I would experience hypomania for mm-hmm. the first month is that pretty common
0: Yeah so so feeling kind of activated or revved up um, so the the irony with some of these medications is that one of the potential side effects is having worsening anxiety. So mm. some of my patients will say, well, why do you have me on a medication that can make my anxiety worse when it's trying to treat my anxiety? So for some of those patients, sometimes if they have no substance use history, I'll give them a little low dose benzodiazepine, a long-acting one like clonopin. I might give them a teeny, teeny, tiny amount, maybe 0.25 twice a day. While the SSRI is building up in their system, and I tell them it's short term, and then taper them off of that once we're at the you know three to six week mark, I see. Um, just to kind of help with that rubbed up feeling. Um, so, so the the mood stabilizers. Okay, so the next um, uh, category would be the antipsychotics, and I hate that they're called that. I really mm-hmm. hate that name because it's so off putting. Because we use them for bipolar disorder, we use them for depression augmentation, like Abilify. Um, And sometimes we do use them off-label, like sometimes some folks might take a little low-dose Seroquel for uh, PTSD. Um, And so these are medications like, yeah, Abilify, Zyprexa, Risperdal, Seroquel. And then there are the older antipsychotics, which we still prescribe, like Haldol and Thorazine, Stelazine, and so forth. So I tend to use those more so in the hospital, Um, but they're fine in outpatient. I call it outpatient land, outpatient land as well. Um, but uh, that—that's the next category, and then there's other medications that we use that don't really quite fit into any particular large group. So there's medications like buspar, which is only which I take. Okay, yes, yeah. yes. So that one's usually taken. And being another one. And thats a TCA, a tricyclic antidepressant. Okay. Um, and so buspar is usually taken three times a day or twice a day, and it's only approved for anxiety, um, but it's kind of its own. Kind mm-hmm. of category. Yeah, a little different. Then we have other medications too, like trazodone and rimarron, which can be helpful for sleep, um, as well as depression. So if I have a patient who, um, because of their depression has low, low appetite, they're not sleeping well, I might give them a little rimarron, which might help put on some weight and also help them, you know, sleep better. And sleep is so important, as you know. You have to be sleeping it's, well. It, yeah, if yeah. that's, if
1: that's off. Mm-hmm. That's what was so horrible about that coming off of bilify was, I would lay down at two o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't fall asleep until eight in in the morning. Oh. And then when I when I would would wake up, mm-hmm. it was just uh, just thoughts of of I don't want to be here. I don't want to be alive. Oh. Not not like I'm actively going to go kill myself, but I just actively don't want to uh, yeah. be be alive. But thankfully, it, I had had enough uh, laps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And around the track uh, with mental health to realize this is going to pass. It's yes. not going to last forever. And that would be the other thing I would I would um, pass along to anybody who's new to um, um, getting treatment for mental health um, is be compassionate and patient with the mm. process. Mm-hmm. It is so counterproductive to say, I should be in this other place Mm. now, instead of just saying, okay, I'm in this place right now, Mm -hmm. what are we going to do? Yes. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, so uh, oftentimes uh, patients, when they first come in, they have their own idea of what looking better would feel like. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes those who do, um, they'll say, yeah, well, I want to be able to do this and do that, and this is what I'm struggling with. And we have to be realistic as far as the time frame, right? So it's not going to be just like that, the patient's going to start feeling better. And so for some of our medications, it can take a little while for them to, um, you know, what we call separate from placebo. So, you know, in studies where they've compared placebos to um, some of our FDA-approved treatments, there's a certain amount of time, you know, to when the data starts to separate, you can see, wow, this person's really responding to the medication versus as a sugar pill okay mm. so we have to give that time um, now sometimes I have patients who come in he'll just say I don't know what, but I'm not feeling like myself and this is not how I want to be living, you know. And we talk about, well, what can we work on? You want something that's going to help you with your energy and with your focus and concentration. And you want to be able to, to be able to work and have, you know, um, good relationship with your, you know, your spouse and not be so irritable and cranky and restless, you know. And so we work together on what's realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also too, again, I just emphasize the therapy because the medication, while it can be so helpful, if they're not getting the regular therapy, Therapy, um you know they're going to really miss out on getting better that much more quickly and also really looking at the root of what's going on and so you know sometimes patients will come in and see me who've never had any mental health treatment and they're starting off with a psychiatrist and i'll ask them oh i'm curious why you chose to start off with a psychiatrist and they'll say well i want to get better soon <laughs> they don't want to do that other work <laughs> therapy's going to take too long <laughs>
1: So and, you're you're a proponent of therapy first and if you're still not getting uh to where you'd like to be then
0: Yes, yes, I tell patients just because you come into my office does not mean you're leaving with a script.
1: <laughs> Good for you.
0: So, um, and I find too that sometimes initially I'll think that they may not need medication and then they're seeing a therapist and the therapist and I, I really love therapists who stay in contact with me. I mean, some will kind of keep me hanging and others will give me updates on all our mutual patients. And I just, I just love that. And so they'll tell me, you know, this is what I'm seeing and and Johnny. Hmm. um, And what do you think about medication at this point? And I'll say, thank you. Thank you for telling me this. Sure. Sure. You know, I'll have my receptions reach out to Johnny and we'll get him back in and we'll, we'll, you know, talk about that so that's another reason why the therapy is so important because it's another set of eyes looking at that person another set of ears listening to that person and and someone else who can advocate for them and let me know what's going on because you know as you said you're seeing your psychiatrist maybe once every six months you know maybe once every three months you know um, but that therapist is seeing the patient much more frequently and they can keep us informed as to what they're seeing and we can make a decision from there.
1: Is it common for depression to get worse when taking a new medication before it gets better?
0: It depends um, because sometimes what we'll do is we'll keep the patient on Their current medication and do what we call a cross titration. So, we'll be starting them on the new medication while they're still on the old medication. And so, sometimes that can be helpful so that levels aren't, you know, dipping, serotonin levels aren't dipping while we're trying to get someone onto the next medication. Um, So, it depends if they're starting brand new with a medication versus they're currently on a medication that's lost some, you know, efficacy and now they want to start something new. So, it really depends. But um, I, I like the, the cross titration approach, unless the medication is really intolerable, like you were like talking about. The, I, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Then just stop the medication under a psychiatrist's care. Yeah. And we'll talk about what to do next. Yeah.
1: Did we cover all of the uh, categories?
0: Um, well, there's other medications that we use that don't really fit into a um, particular category. Uh, and some are off label usage that I'm kind of reluctant to, to, to talk about just because they, they aren't. FDA approved, and I don't want a legal disclaimer here, I don't want anyone to uh, believe this is any kind of psychiatric advice specifically to them. Okay, um, Just talk with your psychiatrist or therapist about it. Um, but there may be other medications that the psychiatrist might prescribe depending on what's going on. Like there, are, there are medications that I prescribe sometimes for my patients who have alcohol abuse or alcohol dependence that are very specific to that diagnosis, and also medications for patients who have opiate abuse or opiate dependence specific to that diagnosis. So th- there's a long list of options, but I just told you about the the most common ones. Okay, yeah.
1: Um, long-term effects of SSRIs um, and what's uh, her point of view on the state of the pharmaceutical industry? So two two-parter.
0: Yeah, so I don't know of any concerning data, um, as far as long-term use of SSRIs. I've had many patients who've been on SSRIs for a long time, and sometimes they might need augmentation or they might need to switch for whatever reason, but, um, nothing as far as any long-term effects, uh, you know, that are concerning, uh, with, with this class of medication that I know of. Um, as far as the pharmaceutical, um, industry, uh, things have really changed over the years with the pharmaceutical industry. Um, if, if I were a psychiatrist in my sixties, I would probably be talking with you about all of the, um, relationships that were had uh, in the past with pharmaceutical companies. Um, and and that's really, really changed now. I mean, in the past, sometimes there would be, you know, gifts or freebies and so forth. Um, uh, pretty outrageous stories that some older psychiatrists have told me about that I, I don't really feel comfortable with. Nowadays, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a challenge because I do maintain these relationships with the pharmaceutical reps because I rely on their samples to help my patients, you mm-hmm. know, and also, too, they're the ones who know about the latest medications that are out um, and they're able to arrange dinners so that, you know, I'm able to go to the dinner sometimes and get more education about it, but it gets a little tricky and sticky um, if there is something that's inappropriate. So it's it's actually not the case anymore where, um, you know, pharmaceutical reps can give us, you know, Post-its or pens or, you mm-hmm. know, anything like that, which I think is a good thing. But we do rely on them in many ways to be able to maintain that connection so that we can get some of the resources for our patients. And I tell my patients, too, you know, just because a medication is new doesn't mean that it's going to be more effective than what we currently have. So I tell them I'd rather some of my colleagues try out these newer medications (laughs) and let me know about their experience before I try them on my own patients. Um, So I'm very honest and upfront with them about that. But sometimes my patients will say, well, you know, doc, I really want to try this new medication. And I'll say, okay, but the caveat is that I don't have any data. I mean, there's the pharmaceutical data, but I don't have any personal data on any of my patients who've tried this new drug. So just with that caveat, then, okay, I'll give you the sample. So um, I try to have appropriate boundaries with them, but I do rely on them to help out my patients. But it's, it's, it's a bit of an issue. It's, it's a big topic of discussion in psychiatry and other fields.
1: Any benefits seen in taking 5-HTP for anxiety or depression over SSRIs?
0: So uh, sometimes patients will ask, well, what do you think about SAMe or St. John's Ward or some um, what we call complementary or alternative medications? And I will tell them that that's not my area of expertise. And the caveat that, you know, some of these uh, you know, supplements or um, alternative therapies aren't regulated. OK, so I don't know if we're really comparing apples to apples um, when a patient brings in a medication, um, from Whole Foods or somewhere else and I, or supplement, it, I don't really know, you know, what the contents are and how it's manufactured. I just don't know. And so I'll tell them that I don't want them to use those medications in combination with what I'm prescribing because sometimes that is unsafe for someone to use St. John's wort along with an SSRI Um, but uh, usually what I'll do is I'll refer them to another psychiatrist who specializes in that Mm -hmm. Um, and we do have some great ones in the Bay Area for patients who really want to go that route. So if they want to, you know, perhaps um, try out um, some of the other, rem- you know, melatonin, I, I prescribe melatonin, I, mean, I prescribe some things um, that uh, patients can get over the counter. But as far as a more in-depth conversation about those things, really, they should be talking with someone mm-hmm. who knows all the data about it, because I just, I just don't know. Yeah.
1: I should probably bring my, I just started taking a over-the-counter sleep thing uh, that's finally helping me get to sleep, but I I should probably let my psychiatrist know. You should
0: definitely let your psychiatrist know. And the psychiatrist, you know, I'm I'm open. When patients bring in something to me and they say, oh, I tried this out and it really worked for me, I don't, you know, I do tell them that, you know, I want them to tell me whether, I don't want them just to start taking something without me knowing about it. But I don't, you know, I'm not punitive, you know, I'll say, well, let me look into that. Okay, we can learn together. Let me look into that and see what we can do. Maybe it is safe, too, but let me talk about it with some colleagues and get back to you.
1: You're going to get some new patients. In, uh, <laughs> in a, sadly, they're my listeners, so I apologize. But <laughs> you are awesome. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm curious about the link between thyroid problems and depression.
0: Yeah. So sometimes we will do a little um, thyroid augmentation. Um, So even if after we've um, checked TFTs, what we call thyroid function tests, which I highly, highly, highly uh, encourage people to talk with their psychiatrist about this. So when you first come in and see the psychiatrist, get your thyroid tested, you know, get a CBC, uh, make sure you don't have anemia because we know CBC. Oh, a complete blood count. Okay. So that's testing for um, hemoglobin, white blood cell count, um, and platelets. And if someone has anemia that can mimic depression, you know, they're feeling sluggish, lethargic, low energy. And so that's really easy to treat. So we want to treat what's easy to treat. And then also too, if their thyroid hormone is off and they have hypothyroidism, that can really mimic depression as well. If they're feeling sluggish, they're holding on to weight. Um, you know, that that's something too, that's pretty easy to treat with some mm-hmm. Synthroid or some other medication. So um, that's, that's the number one thing is when you get established in psychiatrist they should be getting some lab work done because mm-hmm. they're you know we're mds so we want to rule out any medical reasons um why um the person may not be full feeling fully like themselves so so after the TFT, tfts are done the thyroid function tests we're looking at the tsh and the free t4 and the t3 and so forth and so sometimes we can diagnose hypothyroidism, and then um, that can be treated. And usually a psychiatrist will refer out to the primary care doctor or endocrinologist um, if it's pretty involved. Um, sometimes it's a favor, I might uh, write a synthroid prescription, but it's, it's, it's more of a you know, primary care or endocrinology kind of thing. But sometimes things are borderline, and I might offer the patient a little thyroid uh, augmentation, and sometimes that can be helpful for some patients. So it's, it's worth discussing with, mm. with your psychiatrist.
1: I, I uh, Hold on. Would you like another
0: one? Oh, yes, please.
1: Yeah. Um, it just occurred to me that uh, some of the blood work that I had done, uh, I show slight anemia and I don't know if my psychiatrist is aware uh, uh. of that. I should probably tell him.
0: Yeah, you should talk with your psychiatrist about it and also your primary care doc. Um mm. because that is an initial screen, and then they can also look at MCV and some other markers. I don't want to um overwhelm your listeners with too much medical okay. stuff. But um they can look at what type of anemia you might have and determine the appropriate treatment if they you know, if it's mm-hmm. indicated. Um but that too could be something that can contribute to mood symptoms.
1: Learning so much. So much. Um Like a physical illness that typically worsens if not treated, does a mental illness proceed to advance and worsen as well as we age?
0: Yes. So dementia and schizophrenia are two of the most common um, conditions that we know can worsen with age. And so dementia is something that is progressive and we have medications that can slow the progression, Uh, medications like Aricept and Amenda, um, but they don't cure the dementia and the person Mm -hmm. still has dementia, um, but uh, it's thought to slow the progression of the disease. And we know that the older they, you know, the the longer they're alive, their dementia is gonna uh, worsen. Schizophrenia. So over time, if it's untreated, um, schizophrenia can worsen so that's why it's so important uh, when patients uh, have that diagnosis, that they have the good support and they're taking medications regularly because we know that it can make a difference, especially early on. So right now, um, there's a big movement to identify young people who have what we call new onset psychosis. So we're trying to screen young people who might be in their late teens or so. And if they have some of the prodromal symptoms of schizophrenia, we're trying to target them and get them treatment early on because we know over time things can get worse if they're not getting treatment.
1: I am going to apologize right now to the person that has to transcribe this episode <laughs> and try to spell some of this sh- shit. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing the show for four years, and I hear a lot of terms. There, there, there's probably been a dozen here where I'm just like, "All right, let it go, Paul." I'm just, I'm, no idea. <laughs> it would slow it down too much to keep asking what the hell, what the hell that thing is. Um What is the best way to find the right meds?
0: Well, start off finding the right psychiatrist. So I say that to say that I've had some patients who've come to me who are on so many medications, I've actually taken away medications and they've gotten better Mm -hmm. because people don't think about what we call drug-drug interactions. So sometimes if patients are on so many medications, it's hard to sort out wait a minute, Well, why are they taking this one? And why are they taking that one? So your psychiatrist should be able to tell you why this particular medication was prescribed, even if it's off-label use, they should be able to tell you, this is why I chose this medication for you. But sometimes I'll have patients where, you know, the psychiatrist is done a little abilify of them and some Seroquel, and we're added in some Neurontin, and we're doing a little this and a little that. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> what are we treating here? And so sometimes taking away some medications, doing a taper can actually be helpful. So you really want and this is something that I talk with folks about, too, and NAMI. You really want a psychiatrist who... National
1: Alliance of Mental Illness. Yes, yes. yes.
0: Um, you really want someone who enjoys what they do, who has time for you, um, who has appropriate boundaries, though. Okay, mm-hmm. very, very important. Someone who's knowledgeable. Um, and there's different ways in which you can find a good psychiatrist. Sometimes it's word of mouth. And I wish more people would talk about these things. But most of the referrals that I get are word of mouth. Someone's had a good experience with me and they told someone else to, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, really, to be on the right regimen, you have to start off with the right psychiatrist. And, and that's that's very important.
1: And a lot of it is hit or miss. It's, yes. You, sir, every person reacts differently two different meds. So what may save one person's life might be a nightmare for another person. And it's not necessarily the psychiatrist's fault that you had a terrible reaction to that med, correct?
0: That is is so true, so true. So um, I had a therapist who called me who was uh, questioning why I chose a specific medication for a patient, and I had to to talk with her about, well, this is all the things that we tried. This is where we're at now. It wasn't that I just came up with, you know, but these are the experiences she had before with these other medications, and this is why I chose this one, and it's a trial. We're just going to see how she does with this. And so, um, yeah, some medications work well for some patients versus others. Um, One of the questions that we asked, Ask when we do an intake is family history. So sometimes if there's a relative that's done really well with let's say Welbutrin, that might be a good medication for the patient for their depression. But if the patient has more of an anxious kind of depression, well, Butrin can be a little bit stimulating, a little activating for some patients, and maybe it might not be a good um, choice for them. So we really have to get that history and and, and look at the the whole picture and what's going on with the patient to determine the right medications to start off with. But even you know making that decision, it still may not be the best medication for the patient, and we have to do a few trials.
1: And and I think that's where the patients, as a patient, Mm -hmm. Uh, is, is so key. Mm -hmm. Um, I can tell you there have been dozens and dozens of times where I'm just at this super low point where, um, I've got my meds have to be changed and I'm on something new and it's going to be eight weeks before I know if Mm. it even works. And sometimes, nope, that one didn't work. Got to try another one. And it's another two months waiting to see if this one's going to work. And
0: very frustrating you don't
1: want to add on top of that this feeling that this shouldn't be happening Mm -hmm. you just have to you just have to uh, you know take naps do nice things for yourself Mm -hmm. Um, uh, we're almost done we're almost done I appreciate you hanging in here as long as you had Um, thoughts on uh, oh uh, does marijuana have a place in psychiatric treatment
0: (laughs) no Hmm. no not at this time no especially for young people. Um, So unfortunately, now with, with cannabis and young people, um, it's become a big problem, particularly where I live, and and probably all over now, but um, young people are using marijuana to self medicate, you know, for the anxiety to help them sleep. Sometimes they use it socially. So, you know, instead of, Judgment, You know, I'll just start off with teens and I'll say, oh, so I understand that you like to smoke weed. You know, I'll just kind of mm-hmm. talk with them casually. Um, so w- tell me why you do that. Are you alone? Are you with people? And that says so much about what's going on because sometimes it's social pressure. They don't even like it. But they're doing it because, you know, they're sitting around with friends and they're passing around the stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, they feel some pressure. So then we can talk about that and we can talk about what can happen if they continue to use it for people who are using it alone. We can talk about that. Well, what do you do? Oh, you take it at night. OK, versus the morning. Okay, Let's talk about that. You know, and so it's an opportunity to really explore how they're using it. And then sometimes I'm able to use that information to get them to consider some other options Therapy or medication, if indicated, but I think it's really important to talk about why are they using it versus judging right. them like you shouldn 't do that right you know and then and then you kind of open up the discussion for some uh, conversation about the the possible consequences. You know, letting them know, well, you have a choice, right? Because you're choosing to do this now. But let me tell you what can happen. Let me tell you from a psychiatrist's perspective what can happen if you continue to use this long
1: term uh, effects of depression.
0: Yeah. It's a CNS depressant Um, for many of uh, patients who. What is CNS? Oh, central nervous system depressant. Um, And for um, young people whose brains are still developing, okay, this is why young people have to pay uh, more for car insurance who are under 25, right? they've done studies on this, the mm. young brain still developing. Um, you don't want to expose your brain to something that can potentially have some long-term consequences while it's still developing. And and so it's very hard to uh, talk with young people about this because, you know, at times they feel invincible and, oh, it's not a big deal, and you kind of have to... I'm never
1: uh, going to live to see 30, you know? Who gives a shit?
0: I'm <laughs> invincible. Um, but we do know that for patients who have... Um, Pedromal symptoms of uh, psychosis. So kind of little... What does
1: pedromal mean? Pedromal
0: is kind of like slowly what's happening before the psychosis. It's all the kind of subtle things that family members might kind of see, but don't just kind of dismiss, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so maybe um, the patients, um, you know, um, on the internet for six hours, and and they're talking very fast, and they're not sleeping very much, and, you know, putting it all together, wow, there's something brewing here that needs to be addressed, but they may not see it as a mental health issue. And so these are kind of the, the pre symptoms, you know, and so for young people, um, if they're using cannabis on top of some other things that are going on, you know, it really increases the Risk of something more chronic happening uh, in the future.
1: Final question The safety in taking antidepressants during pregnancy.
0: Yeah, that's a, a big discussion. And uh, so, there are several of my colleagues who actually specialize in reproductive psychiatry. And so, I'd suggest that you, um, you know, you can Google reproductive psychiatry in your area and see if there's someone who specializes in that. Now, I have a general um, understanding of that. I started off in OBGYN before I became a psychiatrist. And the, the take home message is we look at risks and benefits, right? So, if I have a patient who is so overwhelmed by their anxiety, they're barely functioning, they're anxious about what's going to happen with the baby what's going to happen in their marriage, what's going to, you know, and it's really affecting all aspects of their life. I'm probably going to encourage them more to consider staying on an SSRI versus someone who is not, not as anxious, and has a great therapist, and doesn't have a family history. And they've had a couple of deliveries before that have been just mm-hmm. fine. You know, we might have a discussion about weekly therapy and then let's let's Mm. talk about if medications are are indicated but the the worst thing is for someone to just suddenly stop medication um because they want to become pregnant really should have a discussion with their psychiatrist about that and the psychiatrist can help you make an informed decision
1: and aren't the majority of uh meds safe to be on during pregnancy no no
0: no 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 no. there's some that are actually dangerous so uh, for example, medications like Depakote and lithium, uh, can cause, uh, birth defects for, uh, for some, some fetuses. So that's why it's really important to mm-hmm. have a conversation with the psychiatrist about this. Now, some are safer in mm-hmm. pregnancy. Um, but yeah, there, there's definitely, um, a role for some discussion on that. And as part of my intake, some of my patients chuckle when I ask them all this, but I, I ask all of my patients of reproductive age, what's their birth control method? And so sometimes they'll ask me like, well, why are you asking me that? Aren't you a psychiatrist? And I said, well, some of these medications can potentially impact the fetus. And I want you to talk with me about, um, you know, your 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 child, you know, rearing mm-hmm. plan. Like, do you, have, do you plan to have children? What's your birth control method? Let's talk about that. Um, because if a patient's doing really well on a medication for a while and then becomes pregnant, we need to talk about what we're going to do about that.
1: Mm. Um, is it, are SSRIs safe during pregnancy?
0: Um, well, we don't really use the term safe because we okay. don't really have a lot of long-term studies. We know which medications can be safer. I and see. so I have like my go-to list of the ones that um tend to be safer during pregnancy and also breastfeeding. That's an important question um, for patients. Do they plan to breastfeed or are they going to pump and dump? What are they going to do after the pregnancy ends? Um, but that, again, that's a discussion that they really should have with their psychiatrist okay. about looking all at all the options and maybe therapy, weekly therapy with a therapist who's in contact with a psychiatrist who can let the psychiatrist know if something's brewing, that that might be fine for some patients. Some patients, the psychiatrist is going to feel more strongly that they, they probably mm-hmm. should be on medication. Uh,
1: now, lithium, uh, though, it, there was a belief for a while that if you had ever taken it, you were going to have problems during childbirth. And that's, that's not, not true. Ca- no, okay. that's not the but case. But for a while, that that rumor was around that, oh, you fucked up your chances of having no. a child because <laughs> you were on lithium. I know that there were a lot of people that used to used mm. to believe that. I mm-hmm. just wanted to yeah, dispense no. with that.
0: Yeah, and we still use um, lithium. Um, you know, I, I still prescribe it. Um, it's a really effective medication. Um, and uh, it really depends, too, on where during the gestation period when the mom is taking the lithium and sometimes we can be creative as far as the timing of the lithium and and you know mm-hmm. where the pregnancy is um as far as uh, how many months but um yeah yeah it's 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 just definitely something that you need to discuss with your psychiatrist and and everything to be documented and and so forth so you can make an informed decision
1: dr melanie watkins thank you so much for being so generous with your uh with your time uh i really appreciate it and i've learned a lot and i know the listeners are going to enjoy uh hearing all of this so thank you
0: you're very welcome thank you
1: many many thanks to dr watkins uh for a great conversation answered a lot of questions that uh that we had and um By the way, she is launching a blog and a podcast called Your Mental Health First, and uh, I believe it's going to be launching in early September, so uh, check in uh, on their progress at uh, their website, uh, which is yourmentalhealthfirst.com. We have a new sponsor this week that I'm very excited about. It's a really exciting product. Uh, It's a smartphone app called um, Start. And it's from a company called Iodine. They're a digital health company. And um, it's an app that helps people who are taking antidepressants to find out what works and to gauge their process um, over the course of taking their meds. You know, as I talked about in the interview with Dr. Watkins, one of the most confusing things about taking meds. Is remembering how you were feeling six months ago, or, you know, four months into taking the med, or even last week sometimes. uh, I I can't remember, you know, what was I feeling? Was I sleeping a lot? Um, How was my memory? Uh, Was I feeling listless? Was I feeling energized? Uh, Start. Is it's just a great app. It shows you what to expect. It checks in with you about your mood, your goals, your issues. It's all about really what matters to you in the process of trying to get better. Um, every two weeks, you get a personalized report so you can reflect on how you're doing without having to rely on your memory. Uh, and after six weeks, uh, Start helps you decide if the medication is working for you. And if not, you'll get some options that you can discuss with your doctors or doctor. Um, and here's an important, uh, thing, uh, iodine works with foundations and communities, not big pharma. Um, the app start is free to download. So to get started, go to iodine.com slash mental pod. And, um, yeah, it, it sounds like it, it, this could help, um, a lot of us chart how we're doing with, uh, with our meds. Cause it is, uh. It is a convoluted, confusing process. Um, And many thanks to them for uh, choosing to uh, sponsor our podcast. Appreciate that. Before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. You can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and make a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, becoming a monthly donor for as little as 5 bucks a month. Uh, that's really the foundation, the financial foundation that helps keep this podcast running. Uh, we don't have much of a budget at all, um, but uh, the bit that we do get from, from you guys um, means the world to me. So if you're considering becoming a monthly donor, please please uh, follow through on it. It would be awesome. And if you listen and you can't support it, that's cool too, because I get a lot Um emotionally from from doing this podcast and i'd be doing it whether or not um you donate it or not this is oh and you can also support us uh, financially by uh, shopping at amazon through our search portal it's on our homepage page our right hand side about halfway down and support us non-financially by spreading the word about the podcast to your friends uh through social media uh whatever way possible um That all helps. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey uh, from a woman who calls herself Creepshow and uh, about her ADD. She writes, either I can't focus or don't you dare interrupt me because I'm hyper-focusing and can't handle an interruption. Very much relate to that one. Um, snapshot from her life. I'm always late because I can't say no to anyone or am finally trying to take some time for myself and it bleeds into the time I'd set aside to be with you. You don't understand and are mad at me. I feel depressed and anxious and work doubly hard to please you. Terrible, terrible cycle. This is filled out by a teenage girl who calls herself token alternative lost girl about her love addiction. Uh, she writes constant fear of loss in your absence, constant disappointment in your presence. About codependency. I know he'd be the perfect person to hear me out on our problems if only I could remember they exist when he's around. Uh, about her uh, premenstrual dysph- dysphoric disorder. She. uh This is a snapshot from it. She writes, Screaming over the railing on the fifth floor parking lot of our usual mall, threatening to jump and meaning it. My mother running towards me, mall security guard looking on like, what does she have to complain about? Three hot meals a day and tertiary education. Crying and fighting her off, getting back in the car, waking up the next morning to see I've bled through the ultimate invalidation of the most intense feelings I know. Thank you for sharing that. That sounds... That sounds like a handful. Um, this is filled out by J.R. about his depression. He writes, I don't want to talk to anyone, but I'll do anything to not feel so alone. Oh my God, that's so profound. About his bulimia, it's like being stuck between two realities and you hate both of them. About his anorexia, a world of never-ending calculation. Uh, snapshot from his life, I get back from a three-hour run and pretend like that is normal. Diet soda for days adderall to keep me feeling numb until i actually wake up binge purge and then go to bed wow that uh, sending you some some love jr that sounds and a lot of people don't think men have eating disorders a lot of people don't think men can be um or women can be uh sexually predatory we got a lot. We got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do with this podcast. Um, this is filled up by Daniel, and um, this is an awfulsome moment. He writes, "When I was a kid, my parents went through a brief separation because of my dad's drinking and drug problems. One day, my dad picked me up from my house and took me out into the desert. The whole way there, he was high and was drinking from his beer in a paper bag that he got from the gas station." Once we got to the spot that he decided we should be, he started telling me about how proud he was of me, that I went through the D.A.R.E. program in school, and that I needed to stay away from drugs and alcohol. Fantastic! Oh, This is filled out by Matt, and a snapshot from his life. He, he His issues are ADD and anger. He writes, "I don't want to be anywhere but at home. But when I am, my half-finished projects and accumulated clutter feel like a million milestones on my chest." Yes. Oh my God, my 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 house is just the the hall of half-finished product, uh, half-finished uh, project shame. I'm having trouble forming words tonight. Uh This is from Struggle in a Sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself lost and BFE. I don't know what BFE stands for. Um, About her anxiety, a vacuum sucking all the air out of my lungs while someone places a vice grip around my ribs so I can't possibly take another breath. About her anger issues, feeling like I could explode when people don't do things the way I have instructed. About her narcissism. That's good that you can see that you're being narcissistic. That's awesome. Um, She writes, Feeling like there is no possible way that someone could possibly be that stupid and there's no reason I should even bother trying to converse with them. Snapshot from her life. Sitting in the living room one night just watching my husband goof off with our teenage sons when they resort to making crude noises. I find myself wondering why I bother coexisting with someone who finds humor in such menial things and only... People that are uneducated and classless would behave like that. And dear God, he's teaching my boys to behave the same. I didn't even realize I'm looking at him with disgust until I hear, why are you looking at me like that? Thank you for sharing that. This is filled out by a uh, teenage girl who calls herself Nimeev about her anxiety it's like an overcritical teacher who is never satisfied with students work always jotting down ways you need to improve without giving any helpful insight into how uh, they would like you to actually do that a snapshot from her life lying in bed in the dark same as you've been for about a month and your father sitting next to you crying and telling you how your depression is hurting him and trying not to burst out laughing because you're so disconnected from him and the situation and everything and you just don't care. This is filled out by the divine Miss Ugh, and uh, oh, this is an awful some moment and she writes... I've been struggling with postpartum depression for months. I'm on the only medication considered safe for breastfeeding, which I don't even do right as my daughter can't latch so I exclusively pump, which makes me feel like a disgruntled dairy cow, and it seems to have stopped working. I have to consider stopping feeding her this way, which leads me down yet another shame spiral of failing her as a mother. So I'm sitting in an unused office at work that I have designated the milking parlor, Attached to this infernal machine, I'm feeling really, really lost and miserable and overwhelmed and just, well, depressed. I finally decided I need to talk to someone because I am genuinely wishing I could just give up. And I call a local suicide hotline. And no one answers. I do, however, get a recording telling me to try back during their business hours. Apparently, even my crises need to be scheduled at someone else's convenience sending you a hug and don't get your titty milk on me when i'm hugging you this is struggle in a sentence filled out by a uh, teenage girl who calls herself one break away from combustion um about her depression she writes living with a built-in, non-refundable brain filter that turns everything negative. You know it's there, but you don't know what specifically it's filtering and what is actually happening. Oh my God, I struggle with that every day. Where is the truth? I wish I knew the truth. Snapshot from her life. In seventh grade, we had a sub in science that was telling us an extremely detailed recollection about when his spleen ruptured and how bloody it all was. Right after he showed us a demonstration about how fast blood moves through us and how far it would shoot out in front of us if we got our arm chopped off, I passed out from trying to keep from screaming my fucking head off and people just laughed at me. To this day, I'm deathly afraid of getting blood drawn because I'm worried the needle will open up a vein or something and blood will shoot out everywhere and literally typing about this is making me feel like my fingertips are going to burst open and shoot blood everywhere. I need to go take a clonazepam. This is filled out by Lily. And uh, her issue is anxiety. And she writes, My anxiety typically runs at a constant low level, always ready to flare up whenever a stressful, stressful situation arises. It'll send up small flares whenever I'm approaching a potential stressor. I hate checking my mailbox and email because they might bring bad news. I avoid the news for similar reasons. I need to be home on Sunday evenings or I'll get too anxious about going back to work on Monday. I spend my life tiptoeing around stress areas, aka things you need to do as an adult, and put off facing them as long as possible. This procrastination also adds to my sense of anxiety. Is there anything more melancholy than the Sunday before having to go back to school or work when it's December and it's gray and it's 40 outside and the sun is just starting to set? Oh my god! that is that is like its own specific world. It, it's There are movies occasionally that evoke that feeling in me. Um There's a movie by Robert Altman called McCabe and Mrs. Miller." If you've never seen it, that entire movie is like four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. In December in the Midwest I mean it takes place in the movie takes place in the West but it's that it just so takes me back to that um, feeling of just not connecting to people feeling alone feeling empty uh, we on steroids. I hate that phrase, on steroids, but... This is filled out by a guy who calls himself GS about his depression. He writes, bipolar two, the depressive phase, when I realized I was drowning, I swam down deeper. Isn't that the beautiful thing about mental illness? It just feeds on itself. That an addiction. The worse it is, the more you want to do what isn't healthy for it. This is an awful moment filled out by um, a woman who calls herself the main bitch. She writes, after a long struggle with depression, uh, and she's gay, she writes, after a long struggle with depression, generalized anxiety disorder, and panic disorder, I decided to sit my friends down at my all-girls Catholic boarding school and tell them about my issues. After I was finished, one of them let out a big sigh and said, well, at least you're not a gay. I like that they said, a gay. Not gay, a gay. Uh, Struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself not crazy, just human about her depression. It's like being in Laverne and Shirley's basement window, staring up at the world above that smells like dog piss sometimes, and of which you are no longer a part about her compulsive overeating. When your weight fluctuates, everyone sees it. You can't keep your pain private even if you want to. Going to a clothes rack and looking for something that doesn't suck rather than something you like. Snapshot from her life. Panic and anxiety can be like playing whack-a-mole. The symptoms morph into some really crazy shit sometimes and can be totally believable and scary. I once felt like my throat was closing up instead of going to an ER because I couldn't embarrass myself I drove to 7-eleven and got a big gulp straw should the need to self innovate arise no really I carried the damn straw around everywhere for months oh my god that's awful that is awful I could have gone in two different surveys squeaky Tom wasn't isn't he the guy that tried to shoot Ford Right now, everybody over 50 is going, yeah, yeah nice, nice try, nice try. We, we get to what you were going for. Uh, his issue is depression and snapshot from his life. He writes, I take my pain meds and do everything that is asked of me at work, yet still it's not enough. I'm a square peg in a round hole and feel like a waste of space in a macho law enforcement environment where I am where I am on an injured on-duty program. I used to be an efficient, well-respected officer, and now I'm a totally spaced out low life piece of crap. Happy days. Hold on one second. This was filled out by a trans male uh, who is gay and um, he's a teenager. Calls himself Yeth Hound about his ADD. I love this one. Like walking behind the slowest old couple in the entire country and not being able to go around them because they're taking up the whole damn sidewalk. <laughs> Snapshot from his life. Desperately roll around on my bed, stand up in the pitch darkness and plead at nothing to let me sleep. Give up and eat a hot dog. Rinse and refuck. This is filled out by Pinky Quinn. She writes about her love addiction, I just want someone to tell me I am everything to them. About her sex addiction, I don't know if it's an addiction, but I love to have sex with my husband several times a day if I had my way. Snapshot from her life, I've been married for nine years to my husband who has Asperger's and has a very high IQ. He's like a robot sometimes. He doesn't compliment me. I hear from other people all the time that I am gorgeous and I don't care. I just want my husband to look at me and tell me that I am beautiful that I am his world and tell me that I am one of the best things in his life. I know that I may never hear it because of his social awkwardness, but I still hope that one day I will hear that one day I will live what I dream about, my husband embracing me, telling me how beautiful and special I am. I want to hear what I say to him all the time. He is my world along with our three kids. That breaks my heart. I wonder if if you guys... uh, have ever been to counseling, that might help. He may, he may not have any idea that that's going on inside you. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by, uh, I love this name, she calls herself Disappointress. She writes, I worked my ass off most of my life to win my father's love, but despite going to the right college, studying what he wanted, uh, I never really have gotten it, at least as demonstrated by words or actions. My father made it clear that I let him down fresh out of my mother's womb by simply not being a boy. He only had daughters, and I was his last chance, but I was the only daughter to bear sons, and I thought maybe, just maybe, that would take me up a notch since I finally provided male descendants. One evening, we hosted a family barbecue, and my young sons were playing rambunctiously on the lawn, throwing things and tackling each other with their shirts off. My father was standing near my brother-in-law watching his grandsons. It seemed like a lovely moment. Then I walked up behind the men and overheard my father saying, Just look at them play. It almost makes you glad you had daughters, doesn't it? fucking can't win. There are certain parents you just can't win. They're just malcontent motherfuckers. This is this is a question that I added. I want to thank um, a listener, uh, God, whose name I'm blanking on, but she's Nicole, I believe, is who it was that said. You should have a survey where people share really important things that other people have done or done for them or said to them when they were in pain. And I thought, that is fantastic. And so I added this question to the What Has Helped You survey. And I'm going to read a couple of those. This was filled out by um, a woman who calls herself a new love for life. Her issues are depression, anxiety, and bulimia. And um, she writes, my mom told me once that it's okay not to be okay. Even though it's so simple, something about it just clicked with me. Being a college student, the world says that you should be having the time of your life right now, and not feeling that way has been devastating. It helped me think, maybe I'm not okay now, but I'll get there. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself BrizBot5000. Uh, His issue is anxiety, and uh, he writes... Somebody explained that anxiety is a psychological response to a very tired mind and body. This makes it less frightening to me than the belief that I am losing my mind. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Awful Lotta Falafel. I think we've read her stuff before. Um, her issues are eating disorder, suicide uh, survivor, survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and um she writes you were angry whoever said you weren't allowed to be angry before my therapist said this it had never occurred to me that i had the right to display negative emotions as a child i wasn't allowed my parents seemingly just couldn't handle one more thing so they used their negative emotions anger scorn etc to silence ours in an ironic twist. After my therapist said this to me, repressed anger came to the surface and it empowered me to put up the temporary boundaries I needed, which helped lift a bit of the enmeshment. Since I let my anger surface, I could finally deal with it and lay it to rest. Don't get me wrong, I still get frustrated with my parents, but I'm able to have so much more compassion now that my anger has been released, not to mention a freedom and esteem that comes with boundary setting. Thanks, Dr. Joan. That is... God, I love reading that. That is just I like see ray, when I read something like that, I see like rays of sunshine coming off that. I just want to I just want to get on top of a mountain and read that to the world. So they know that that is possible for them. And 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 we can realize how devastating it can be to a child's soul. To brainwash them into thinking that feelings are wrong. Um, This is filled out by a woman who calls herself serotonin sister. And her issues are severe depression and love addiction. And um, what helped her, uh, she writes, was unrelenting encouragement to follow my passions, validating my worth, staying in touch with me. I felt cared for. This is filled out by Bobo Jones and her issues are generalized anxiety, panic attacks, and health anxiety. And uh, what helps her, Uh, she writes, having a family member or friend who just listens and offers support rather than judgment is the best thing in the world. Agreed. Agreed. Human connection. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Dashing LP. He is gay. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused. Um, Not sure if he's been physically or emotionally abused. He writes, when I was a kid, he has been emotionally abused or neglected, whatever you want to call it. To me, neglect is abuse. Anyways, he writes, When I was a kid, I was sleeping in my bed and fell off the side. It hurt, so I started crying, expecting my mom or dad to come in and kiss the boo-boo or say you're fine or whatever. That didn't happen. Eventually, I was just laying there on the floor, dry tears, staring at the ceiling, listening to the sounds of conversation and laughter outside my bedroom. We had extended family over. It was awkward walking out into the living room full of people, being half angry and half embarrassed. Younger than that, we were coming home from my grandmother's house. It was nighttime, and as I was getting out of the car, I felt a sharp pain deep in my left foot. I had stepped on a pin cushion, and a needle had gone through my shoe and into my foot. I was screaming. Eventually, we got inside the house, got the needle out, got the shoe off, then my blood-soaked sock, me whimpering the whole time. We cleaned up my foot and put a Band-Aid on it. Felt a sharp sting in my foot every now and then, all the way up to my senior year in high school. Looking back, maybe we should have gone to the hospital. I'm I'm not sure because most of the things that happened weren't malicious, just neglectful. Also, I was a pretty difficult kid, so I'm sure how I feel about it. I think he means so I'm not sure how I feel about it. Uh, I had a handful of positive experiences with my parents. As I got older, I understand them more as people. They just weren't equipped to commit to being parents. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Maybe abuse is too strong of a word there, but um, it's his feelings that matter. Um, Darkest thoughts. I think about my suicide the same way an eager bride does her wedding day. It's got to be out in a secluded area of the woods to make it harder to discover my body. I intend to somehow cremate myself afterwards, so maybe a bullet to the head with some kind of Rube Goldberg machine involving gasoline and lighter. It's going to be in a hole to avoid causing a forest fire. I would feel absolutely terrible if I caused a forest fire. I mean, I want to completely disappear from the earth, but not take the forest with me. In my little death trench... Pictures of me, identification, my license plate, why not, and any other shit that, I said, that says I existed. If you know any suicide strats that meet the no pain, quick disposal, and thorough erasing criteria, hit me up on the tweets. I love this guy. Uh, darkest Secrets, I am a closeted gay close with my family, and I am completely infatuated with my cousin's husband. It sucks. It really sucks. Been waiting for this shit to die down, but it's been years, and I still feel the exact same way as when we had that first conversation. I've kept my distance, only talking to him when necessary or polite. We're very similar in terms of personality, and we both spent our adolescence holed up in our rooms listening to music all day, probably for different reasons. I know there's no chance, and I would never ever even hint my infatuation, but I've debated whether or not we could have a friendship despite it. I imagine it's the same for a straight person to try and be friends with someone they're infatuated with. Add another layer of whether that would be a tell that I'm gay to my family. It's just a metal minefield I've laid out for myself, and I'm tired. It sounds tiring. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. The idea of quickies and power bottoms. Sharing this makes me feel weird. Um, Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Mm, The answer is probably obvious, but I love my cousin way too much to do some fucked up shit like that. What if anything do you wish for? I wish I had a better brain. Have you shared these things with others? Nope, because I'm just not that open about myself. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel not better, just more understood and heard. Well, we hear you. We hear you loud and clear. And um I'm sorry that you that it doesn't feel safe for you to to come out, and I hope one day you can embrace who you are without shame because you deserve that. This is from the um Love Off Thread on um can't remember if it was Twitter or Facebook. Uh, somebody writes, uh, Dinky writes, I love when the kids are asleep and the AC is on and I get to lay with my husband and binge watch episodes of a favorite show until we pass out. Megan writes, when my two year old son gives me the biggest, squeeziest hug without me asking him for one. Tiari writes, I love feeling those wisps of gas that come off of dry ice. I didn't know you could feel something. Um, Natalie writes, I love when someone else brushes my hair. That's a great one. I love when someone brushes my hair and I'm up in the uh, tower of a castle and I'm looking over my kingdom and wishing that I could get over to the other side of the moat. So... I just carried that riff on for an hour. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Fort Wayne fuck up. I am a fan already. He's straight in his 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment. He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, When I was five or six, my older neighborhood kids asked me to come over. Being the young kid, uh, I was excited to be invited over. Upon coming in the house, they had me get in bed with one of the boys' younger sister. She was about my age. I don't really know what happened. I seem to be blocking it out, but I remember the stereotypical 90s car poster on the wall and the smell of the blanket as I pulled my pants down to my ankles as instructed. I also remember looking at the girl and realizing that neither of us wanted to be here. After that, nothing. I don't even know how or when I got back home. He's never been physically abused, but he has been emotionally abused. He writes, I am made to feel dumb and wrong in my choices all the time by my wife. I've just recently come to realize that she isn't always right, and I don't have to hate myself as much as she thinks I should, but I still don't fully understand it or grasp how one person could say such hurtful things and then 10 minutes later apologize and tell me they are sorry I made them mad. I mean, what the fuck? Nobody makes you mad, by the way um you we choose uh our how how we react to other people we don't you know i mean we don't we don't have a choice for what feelings come up in us but we have a choice over how we express those feelings to other people um let's see Any positive experiences with your abusers? My wife and I have been best friends since we were 15. We have some wonderful experiences together, but maybe we should have just stayed friends. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about coming home and finding my wife dead. She wouldn't be angry and depressed anymore, and I would be free with a big fat life insurance check. Darkest secrets. I cheat on my wife a lot. I don't even have the sex drive to do it. I simply do it to release the anger I have towards her. I would, I would highly recommend going to see a therapist that deals with sexual trauma, because uh, a lot of people who've experienced sexual trauma have difficulty advocating for themselves. And there's something uh, about having that innocence taken away from us that just makes it really scary to stand up for ourselves. And um, I think standing up for yourself with your wife would be a much healthier option than um, cheating on her, which sounds like you don't want to be doing, even though you feel compelled to do it, or maybe go to some type of sex addiction uh, support group. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to come home and have a girl waiting for me, someone that just grabs me, throws me in the bed, and starts sucking my cock as soon as I walk in the door. Saying that makes me realize how simple that is and what a shame I don't have it. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my wife I love her, but her mood swings, manipulation, and lack of remorse are killing me and making me not want to be around. I would say this if I knew it wouldn't trip her blind rage that would cause her to only hear someone picking on her, not me opening up. Definitely counseling. You guys have to go to counseling. What if anything do you wish for? I wish she would seek professional help, but she won't. Make it a deal breaker. Say, listen, uh, we are going to joint counseling or we are getting a divorce. You choose. Have you shared these things with others? No. How do you feel after writing these things down? Hopeless. I don't see any way of making things better anymore. It just seems time to get out. It might be. It might be. But uh, sending you some love, buddy. And the other thing I would, I would encourage you to keep in mind is that your wife, deep down, is just probably hurt and afraid and that's how she that's how she expresses her fear and her her anger and anger to me comes from fear so your wife just i i think she's just really really af- afraid of a lot of stuff in her life and uh, unfortunately she thinks taking it out on you is okay or at least okay enough that she keeps doing it kelly writes I love being able to exercise again after an injury and being able to exercise smarter for the injury. That's a great love. Dave writes, I love the connection you can make with someone during a conversation. I love it. Courtney writes, I love waking up in the middle of the night drinking a whole glass of ice cold water and going back to bed. I do too sometimes when I can't sleep. I'll get up and I'll drink water and sometimes that's just enough to get me back to sleep. Hey Paul, who cares? I care. Look at that debating myself, debating the mean part of my brain. Hey, mean part of my brain, how are you doing? Fuck off. Nobody gives a shit. Wow, you sound really angry, mean part of Paul's brain. Yeah, well, I fucking am. You know, we had a shitty childhood, and I feel empty a lot of times, and uh, I want to fucking do something about it. Well, you know, yelling about it is not going to make things any better. Fuck you. Go fuck yourself. That's what silences the brain. Got to tell your brain to go fuck itself. This is the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Useless Loser 84. Um, I love how you guys are able to pack as much self hatred into a single name as possible. <laughs> now this one is from Shit Eating Cum Dumpster 77. Anyway, Useless Loser, 84, is straight. Although he writes, I still have gay fantasies from time to time, usually about someone dominating and fucking me in the ass. He's in his 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, he has never been sexually abused. Uh, although he writes, When I was about nine, I talked my older female cousin into making out with me because I was afraid at that age that I would never get to be with a woman. It happened a couple of times while her sister, who was about my age, was in the room. I feel a little awkward about it, but I don't think shame is the right word. It happened a few times over the next two to three years. I don't think that counts as abuse, uh, because she was about 13 to about 16 when this was going on, uh, On, and I really didn't want it. And I liked it. I don't know. I'm confused. And I re- oh, I really did want it, and I liked it. Yeah, that uh, that's I don't believe that's Abusive. He's never been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, He writes, My parents really did the best they could. I was spanked, but they, mom and dad, were raised in a rural, take-no-shit environment themselves. There are things I get angry about when I think back on them, but raising kids is hard, and my fuck-ups are definitely not my parents' fault. Darkest thoughts. I worry about completely losing it one day and being one of those dudes who becomes a mass murder, a mass shooter. I also worry about finding girls in their mid-teens sexually attractive. I used to fantasize a lot about fucking a girl who has reached the legal age of consent in my state, but is still not 18. I always fantasized about it being completely consensual between us, though. My attraction to girls who are still in high school has mostly faded, though. Darkest Secrets I often worry if what I did with a neighborhood boy when I was in my teens counts as sexual abuse. I was about 15, and he was about 12 at the time. We used to grab each other's dicks a lot and, and sort of start to jack each other off. I had a lot of... can't see this word. I had a lot of something about him fucking me and sucking his cock, but it never actually happened. Um sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Usually they involve having anal with girls that I know and, and um, am attracted to. It's kind of weird because if I really like the girl, I rarely fantasize about having anal with her. It feels too weird. But if I just think she's hot, I usually want to fuck her ass. Uh, I think all of that would go nicely on a license plate, by the way. that The print would have to be very small, but it would be a memorable license plate. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I just wish I could really ask a woman out and could be more perceptive when a woman was flirting with me. I also have trouble maintaining friendships because I feel shy, even with people I've known for years. What, if anything, do you wish for? That I could just be, quote, normal, whatever the fuck that means. That I had more energy to accomplish my goals. That whatever this blackness that hides out inside me is could just be scooped out. Oh, dude, you... you. You have described 90% of us. Welcome to the human race. And that's not to minimize what you're going through or what you feel. It's just to let you know you are not alone. Have you shared these feelings with others? No, I have a lot of problems discussing my feelings with others. Plus, I'm always just so whiny, depressed, and boring. Well, what if you're not? What if you're not whiny, depressed, depressing, and boring? What if you're actually... um somebody who's pleasant to connect to because you're deep. Something to consider. How do you feel after writing these things down? About the same as I did, but it's the first time I've ever shared these things, and I know this is a completely safe, judgment-free zone. My narcissistic side really hopes you read mine on air. Well, mission accomplished, big head. Anything you'd like to see? Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences if someone sees something on my survey they can relate to, I'm glad they no longer feel alone. I related very much to that part uh that you talked about wanting to have the darkness inside your chest scooped out. I have felt that emptiness so many days where it just leads me back to bed or to my video game, you know um back to the love off. TR writes, I love the first warm day of spring when I can wear a skirt after months of cold, wet, and gray. Jesse writes, I love the way the air feels and smells just before it rains in New Hampshire. Erica writes, I love when I get in my truck and I catch a favorite tune at the beginning. I also love when my dog gets so excited to see me when I first get home that she dances and snorts. That's the good stuff. Uh, And Erica writes, I love going to my improv comedy class where I can take the same mental processes that make up my anxiety disorders and by taking them to a ridiculous logical conclusion and performing it, create something that makes my friends and I laugh. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. And uh, we've got an awful some moment and a happy moment. And this is an awful moment. I love this one. This is filled out by a uh, woman who calls herself Bipolicious, and she writes, After my mother died, I had a temp job downtown. At lunch, I sat in the front window of the building and broke down in tears. I'm not ashamed to be emotional in public, but I did crack the hell up when I realized that the hanky I was using was actually the pair of clean undies I keep in my gym bag. Oh, that makes me so happy. That makes me so fucking happy. This is uh, a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Anxious Composer. And um, he writes, In the midst of my most recent breakdown, while experiencing crippling anxiety and depression daily, I have tried so many things to keep a handle on myself and to keep focus on what matters to me. One of those things I have done has been to get exercise daily, which during the summer has meant forcing myself out of the house and into nature, taking long walks each day. Things have been up and down over the past six or so weeks, with doable and terrible days, but I have kept on walking every day. I refuse to give up, even when my symptoms make me want to give in. I found the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast a few weeks ago and have been listening daily ever since. Hearing that so many others have been going through similar experiences to me has been so incredibly cathartic, but still, there was that voice in the back of my head that would say, yeah, but they can find their salvation. People like that can heal, not you. You're always going to be messed up. Such is the persistent, nagging passenger that is depression, always there to tell you what a fuck up you are. I usually keep my head down on my walks, just grateful that I could get out of my house and head uh, and head for a little bit. But today, for some reason, I can't explain. I stopped for a bit on a park bench to listen to the end of another episode before heading home. Paul got to the survey responses and read one of mine. I was so entranced by the early afternoon sun that I almost didn't hear it. I stopped the episode and replayed that part. Oh my God. Those were my words he read. In that moment, I knew that I could be one of those people that are healing too. Or maybe, just maybe, I am. You are, dude. You are. You're taking care of yourself. You're practicing self-care. You know, you're trying to expand your mind. You're trying to connect to other people. You are healing. Anybody listening to this podcast, no matter how fucked up you feel, you are searching, you are seeking. And that is one of the most important things. You know, here I am 12 years into recovery from substance abuse, uh, you know, years into therapy, years into psychiatric care. And I still struggle, but I'm moving forward and I continue seeking. And that helps keep me going because I know there's there's good stuff. It's like swimming swimming in a stream. You are just bound to pass stuff that is going to feed you and that is good to you and yeah you're going to hit some jagged rocks and oh I already hate this metaphor. <laughs> and then a fisherman's going to grab the side of your head with a hook, pull you out, you're going to suffocate and he's going to fillet you. How's that? How do you like that for the end of the show? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> I can't can't end on that. I can't end on that. But dude, you are healing. You are one of us. There is, that is one of the, the sickest myths in the world is that nobody understands what we feel and we are alone. But it's so believable every day. We have to fight that belief that we're fucked and we've blown it and our life is over, that it's, you know, there are a few things scarier to me than the unknown. And yet, there's been so much good stuff in my life. So many great moments that I never predicted. But I have to get out of my house. I have to stop playing Civilization V to experience them. All right, I'm starting to run my mouth. Oh my God, we're at 150 minutes. All right. Just remember, you're not alone. Even though you feel you are, you're not. And uh, get out of your comfort zone and ask for help if you haven't done it yet. It can change your life, change mine. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody Everybody I know is bizarrely
0: beautifully fucked up in some some weird way.